Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Well, when, when we talk about uh, that, because it, you, you automatically have an extension to the Jim Crow laws where even and, and you understand a little bit more about caste and hierarchy. When, when you talk about the Great Migration, uh, you know, Southern blacks moving to the north uh, for a better opportunity to be met with the same uh, discrimination, the same racism, everything that was happening in the south was in the north as well. That plays to this idea that there's this hierarchy, there's this caste that it's not necessarily uh, one state or one plantation. It's countrywide uh, and in some cases global. But at the end of the day, the, the question I have is just when you see that, it makes us better understand what we mean by uh, white privilege, because a lot of people may not understand themselves being white people saying, well, I don't I don't have I'm not I don't understand. But this idea that they want to be at the top of this hierarchy and this caste by whatever means necessary. Well, part of it has to do with understanding what caste is. I mean, caste essentially is an artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society that determines standing and respect, benefits of doubt, access to resources, or lack thereof, assumptions of competence, intelligence, and even beauty through no fault or action of one's own. So you do not ask to be born right. to the top or the bottom. You're born into it, uh, and, and yet without your even wanting to, there are entitlements that come to you without you even trying. You, this is just the way that it is, and the goal here is to allow allow us to be able to see underneath what is made invisible because we have accustomed to this, that we think that this is this is the way that it always has been. We cannot often see what's underneath because it has been, it's not talked about, we don't recognize it, but you can't fix what you can't see. You can't understand what you don't know, and this is a way to help us to know, help us to be able to see so that, that maybe we can see ourselves through a different lens and then maybe be able to find a new framework in order to heal. Yeah, what do we need to do as a country to transcend this system? You talk about radical empathy. I talk about radical empathy because this is a 400-year-old system, a 400-year-old social order that that has defied so many efforts to defeat it. You know, the civil rights legislation of the 1860s and 70s, and then the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. So there have been efforts legally in, you know, a, a tremendous and important and necessary legal uh, uh, changes to, to uh, forbid the very things that still seem to be with us. You know, it's very clear that despite that very important legislative accomplishments that need to be strengthened, in fact, there is something underneath it that seems to still persist because it's being passed down through the generations. It's being, it's sort of, it's like the groundwater that we drink. It's everywhere. The, the assumptions and, and recognition of who is expected to be where in a particular place, right. who is supposed to be the CEO in the corner suite, who would be in the mailroom, who would be the secretaries, who would be the janitors. Those are the kinds of things that we saw also with COVID-19, where the, the people who were on the front lines were more likely to be associated with the subordinated caste of what I would call a subordinated caste. And so these are things that we still live with today. The goal would then to be able to try to transcend these artificial boundaries, recognize, first of all, that they're artificial and arbitrary. Once we can see that they're artificial and arbitrary, then we can begin to transcend them and recognize that we all have so much more in common than we've been led to believe, that we truly you know, want the same things. People 
want the same thing for their children. They want to, you know, to be uh, successful in their career. They want to live out their their talents and uh, and their gifts while they uh, during their time on this planet. And if we could begin to see that we have so much more in common, that we are actually one species, and that these divisions are arbitrary and have been so destructive to everyone. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in this book is the ways in which this is destructive yeah. for all of us in ways that we might not otherwise see in hopes that we can you know, somehow transcend this for the betterment of ourselves and our, our society and, and for the species and the planet. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Thursday, October 15. 2020 so i have been told this is our weekly book study on isabel wilkerson's taste the origins of our discontents this is our sixth study session we are moving right along through the text uh the report you just heard uh that was from wbez uh chicago public radio uh it aired Maybe a month ago, uh, right around the middle chunk uh, of September, uh, Miss Wilkerson dropped by to talk about her book. Man, did you count the number of times she said arbitrary? Now, the interview that they did was close to 30 minutes. Uh, we heard a portion of it just in that portion. How many times she used the word arbitrary? already talked about that because she she uses that word a lot in this book the metaphors taste is like the groundwater so we got it's like a how America is like a house that's falling apart groundwater a play the matrix the metaphors are just bam 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 she's dropping them left and right then we all want the same things for our children that is categorically false. We are in a system of white supremacy. In fact, Azor Savage was a guest on this here program uh, in 2019, right at the end, December. She wrote about white supremacy racism in the Seattle public school system. She said white parents came out and said, we do not want black children to have the same type of education as our children. Our children are superior. They are supposed to have the best. Those little nigglets, that's just the next generation of super predators where white people actually said that it's documented. And Isabel Wilkerson, she's not an idiot. I keep going back the warmth of other sons, 15 years of research. In addition to her long career as a journalist, she's not ignorant. She knows about the history of white people even closing down public schools, building, building their own separate schools. The legend pitchfork Ben Tillman said you can close down Clemson and keep all your federal education dollars. If you think I'm going to have one single white South Carolina child in school with a coon who's with me. Ben Tillman in the book club. One of my favorites, Ben Tillman, and the reconstruction of white supremacy, not cased. Anyway, all of that, that somehow this book will help us see, meaning white people, that they practice racism, white supremacy, help us practice empathy with one another. All of that is just really 
empty rhetoric. I think Dr. Marimba Ani and Yurugu, she might even call that universalism, that rhetorical ethic. I don't even know what she means when she says transcend these arbitrary boundaries. Generally, that's the type of thing where I jingle my cowbell. If somebody is talking in that manner, oh, yeah, this person is in some sort of tragic arrangement with a white person. Like, oh, yeah, talking in abstracts. And what are we even talking about? Anywho, we will continue digging into the book. Uh, I I would kind of keep that in mind. What what purpose do we think this book what purpose does this book serves? Why did Miss Wilkerson write this book? Who is her target audience for this book? Do we think her audience for this book is different than the audience for the warmth of other sons? Just some questions to think about as we continue reading again, cased the origins of our discontents context of white supremacy. This is audio segment one. Chapter 11. Dominant group status threat and the precarity of the highest rung. In late 2015, two economists at Princeton University announced the startling revelation that the death rates of middle aged white Americans, especially less educated white Americans at midlife, had risen for the first time since 1950. The perplexing results of this study on mortality rates in the United States sounded alarms on the front pages of newspapers and at the top of news feeds across the nation. The surge in early deaths among middle-aged white people went counter to the trends of every other ethnic group in America. Even historically marginalized black and Latino Americans had seen their mortality rates fall during the time period studied, from 1998 to 2013. The rise in the white death rate was at odds with prevailing trends in the rest of the Western world. Americans had enjoyed increasing longevity the previous century with each succeeding generation due to healthier lifestyles and advancements in medicine. But starting just before the turn of the 21st century, the death rates among middle-aged white Americans ages 45 to 54 began to rise as the least educated in particular succumbed to suicide, drug overdoses, and liver disease from alcohol abuse, according to the authors of the seminal study, Anne Case and the Nobel laureate Angus Deaton. These deaths of despair, as the economists called them, accounted for the loss of some half a million white Americans during that period, more than the number of American soldiers who died during World War II. These are people who might still be alive had this group kept to previous generational trends. These are deaths that do not have to happen, Case said at a conference on inequality. These are people who are taking their lives, either slowly or quickly. The worsening numbers were persistent and large enough to drive up white mortality rates overall and to outweigh the gains in longevity from advances in the treatment of cancer and heart disease. The turnabout reversed decades of progress in mortality and was unique to the United States, Case and Deaton wrote. No other rich country saw a similar turnaround. For this group of Americans, mortality rates rose 
at a time when rates in other Western countries had not merely dipped, but had plummeted. The rate for middle-aged white Americans rose from about 375 per 100,000 people in the late 1990s to about 415 per 100,000 in 2013. As against a fall in the United Kingdom, for example, from about 330 per 100,000 to 260 per 100,000 over the same period. A graphic of the mortality rates for leading Western nations shows an upward line for the death rates of middle-aged white Americans against the plunging lines for their counterparts in fellow Western countries. What could account for the worsening prospects of this group of Americans unique in the Western world and singular even in the United States. The authors noted that since the 1970s, real wages had stagnated for blue-collar workers, leading to economic insecurity and to a generation less well-off than previous ones. But they acknowledged that similar stagnation had occurred in other Western countries. They noted that comparable Western countries had a more generous safety net that could offer protections not available in the United States. Yet white Americans would not be the only group affected by wage stagnation and a thin safety net. Blue-collar workers of other backgrounds would be equally at risk from the uncertainties of the economy, if not more so. Black death rates had been historically higher than those of other groups, but even their mortality rates were falling year by year. It was white Americans at midlife who were dying of despair in rising numbers. In caste terms, these are the least well-off, most precariously situated members of the dominant caste in America. For generations, they could take for granted their inherited rank in the hierarchy and the benefits that accrued from it. We may underestimate, though, the aftershocks of a shift in demographics, the erosion of labor unions, the perceived loss of status, the fears about their place in the world, and resentment that the kind of security their fathers could rely upon might now be waning in what were supposed to be the best years of their lives. Rising immigration from across the Pacific and the Rio Grande and the ascendance of a black man as president made for an inversion of the world as many had known it, and some of them might have been more susceptible to the calls to take our country back after 2008 and to make America great again in 2016. In America, political scientists have given this malaise of insecurities a name, Dominant Group Status Threat. This phenomenon is not the usual form of prejudice or stereotyping that involves looking down on outgroups who are perceived to be inferior, writes Diana Mutz, a political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. Instead, it is born of a sense that the outgroup is doing too well and thus is a viable threat to one's own dominant group status. The victims of these deaths of despair are in the same category of people whom centuries ago the colonial elites elevated as they created the caste system. 
The planters bestowed higher status on European yeomen and those of the lower classes to create a new American category known as white. In earlier times, even those who owned no slaves, wrote the white Southern author, W.J. Cash, clung to the dear treasure of his superiority as a white man, which had been conferred on him by slavery, and so was determined to keep the black man in chains. By the middle of the 20th century, the white working-class American, wrote the white Southern author Lillian Smith, has not only been neglected and exploited, he has been fed little except the scraps of skin color and white supremacy as spiritual nourishment. Working-class whites, the preeminent social economist Gunnar Myrdal wrote, need the demarcations of caste more than upper-class whites. They are the people likely to stress aggressively that no Negro can ever attain the status of even the lowest white. In a psychic way, the people dying of despair could be said to be dying of the end of an illusion, an awakening to the holes in an article of faith that an inherited, unspoken superiority, a natural deservedness over subordinated castes, would assure their place in the hierarchy. They had relied on this illusion, perhaps beyond the realm of consciousness, and perhaps needed it more than any other group in a forbiddingly competitive society in which downward social mobility was a constant fear, the historian David Rodiger wrote. One might lose everything, but not whiteness. In the midst of the Great Depression, the scholar W.E.B. Du Bois observed that working-class white Americans had bought into the compensation of a public and psychological wage, as he put it. They were given public deference and titles of courtesy because they were white. They had accepted the rough uncertainties of laboring-class life in exchange for the caste system's guarantee that no matter what befell them, they would never be on the very bottom. The American caste system, which co-opted this class of white workers nearly from the start, drove such a wedge between black and white workers that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interests, Du Bois wrote. These insecurities extend back for centuries. A Virginia slaveholder remarked in 1832 that poor whites had little but their complexion to console them for being born into a higher caste. When a hierarchy is built around the needs of the group to which one happens to have been born, it can distort the perceptions of one's place in the world. It can create an illusion that one is innately superior to others, if only because it has been reinforced so often that it becomes accepted as subconscious truth. Nobody could take away from you this whiteness that made you and your way of life superior, Lillian Smith wrote. They could take your house, your job, your fun. They could steal your wages, keep you from acquiring knowledge. They could tax your vote or cheat you out of it. They could, by arousing your anxieties, make you impotent but they could not strip your white skin off of you.
it became the poor white's most precious possession, a charm staving off utter dissolution. Given that the hierarchy was designed for the benefit of the caste that created it, the basic restrictions upon marriage, occupation, and public gatherings separate the two groups into two self-perpetuating castes in such a way that the white group is assured the higher privileges and fuller opportunities, wrote the anthropologists W. Lloyd Warner and Allison Davis of the bipolar caste system exemplified by the Jim Crow South. This affords the dominant caste a tremendous gain in psychological security as a result of their categorically defined superiority of status. Things began to change in the 1960s when civil rights legislation opened labor markets to women of all races, to immigrants from beyond Europe, and to African Americans, whose life-and-death protests helped unlock doors for all of these groups. New people flooded the labor pool at the precise moment that manufacturing was on the decline, and every worker now faced greater competition. In the span of a few cruel years, wrote the New York Times columnist Russell Baker in the 1960s of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, he has seen his comfortable position as the in-man of the American society become a social liability as the outcasts and the exploited have presented their due bills on their conscience. Some people from the groups that were said to be inherently inferior managed to make it into the mainstream, a few rising to the level of people in the dominant caste, one of them, in 2008, rising to the highest station in the land. This left some white working-class Americans, in particular those with the least education and the material security that it can confer, to face the question of whether the commodity that they could take for granted, their skin and described race, might be losing value. There had always been a subordinate caste, and everyone knew who the subordinate caste was and had positioned themselves accordingly. Always the Negro was something you had to prove you were better than, Lillian Smith wrote of the white working-class dilemma, and you couldn't prove it. No, you couldn't prove it. The beliefs and assumptions had all contributed to a collective madness, and it is that which feeds on half-lies and quarter-truths and dread. Those in the dominant caste who found themselves lagging behind those seen as inherently inferior potentially faced an epic existential crisis. To stand on the same rung as those perceived to be of a lower caste is seen as lowering one's status. In the zero-sum stakes of a caste system upheld by perceived scarcity, if a lower caste person goes up a rung, an upper caste person comes down. The elevation of others amounts to a demotion of oneself. Thus, equality feels like a demotion. If the lower caste person manages actually to rise above an upper caste person, the natural human response from someone weaned on their caste's inherent superiority is to perceive a threat to their existence, a heightened sense of unease, of displacement, of fear for their very survival. If the things that I've believed are not true, 
then might I not be who I thought I was? The disaffection is more than economic. The malaise is spiritual, psychological, emotional. Who are you if there is no one to be better than? It's a great lie on which their identity has been built, said Dr. Shushrut Jadav, a prominent Indian psychiatrist based in London who specializes in the effects of caste on mental health. Thus, a caste system makes a captive of everyone within it. Just as the assumptions of inferiority weigh on those assigned to the bottom of the caste system, the assumptions of superiority can burden those at the top with unsustainable expectations of needing to be several rungs above, in charge at all times, at the center of things, to police those who might cut ahead of them, to resent the idea of undeserving lower castes jumping the line and getting in front of those born to lead. His whole life is one anxious effort to preserve his caste, wrote the Dalit leader Bimrao Ambedkar of the dominant caste. Caste is his precious possession, which he must save at any cost. When people have lived with assumptions long enough, passed down through the generations as incontrovertible fact, they are accepted as the truths of physics, no longer needing even to be spoken. They are as true and as unremarkable as water flowing through rivers or the air that we breathe. In the original caste system of India, the abiding faith in the entitlement of birth became enmeshed in the mind of the upper caste and hangs there to this day without any support, Ambedkar wrote. For now it needs no prop but belief, like a weed on the surface of a pond. The anxieties of the least secure in the dominant caste are not unlike those of a firstborn child expected to take over the family business. He may have neither the interest nor the specialized aptitude for it, but feels duty-bound, pressured to take the reins, even though a younger sibling, say a sister, is the one who was always good with numbers and has the temperament to run things but is not considered because of the family hierarchy of who goes first and who inherits what. This creates unsustainable expectations in a culture that proclaims to be egalitarian, but was set up for certain people to dominate by birth. Custom and law segregated the white working and middle classes for so long that most would not have been in a position to see firsthand the headwinds confronting disfavored Americans. The hand of government in the lives of white citizens has often been made invisible and has left distortions as to how each group got to where they are, allowing resentments and rivalries to fester. Many may not have realized that the New Deal reforms of the 1930s, like the Social Security Act of 1935, providing old age insurance, and the Wagner Act, protecting workers from labor abuse, excluded the vast majority of black workers, farm laborers and domestics, at the urging of Southern white politicians. Further tipping the scales, the Federal Housing Administration was created to make home ownership easier for white families by guaranteeing mortgages in white neighborhoods 
while specifically excluding African Americans who wished to buy homes. It did so by refusing to back mortgages in any neighborhood where black people lived, a practice known as redlining, and by encouraging or even requiring restrictive covenants that barred black citizens from buying homes in white neighborhoods. Together, these and other government programs extended a safety net and a leg up to the parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents of white Americans of today, while shutting out the four parents of African Americans from those same job protections and those same chances to earn or build wealth. These government programs for the dominant caste were in force during the lifetimes of many current-day Americans. These programs did not open to African Americans until the late 1960s, and then only after the protests for civil rights. The more recent forms of state-sanctioned discrimination, along with denying pay to enslaved people over the course of generations, has led to a wealth gap in which white families currently have ten times the wealth of their black counterparts. If you are not black, and if you or your parents were alive in the 1960s and got a mortgage, wrote Ben Mathis Lilly in Slate, you benefited directly and materially from discrimination. The very machinery upon which many white Americans had the chance to build their lives and assets was forbidden to African Americans who were still just a generation or two out of enslavement and the apartheid of Jim Crow burdens so heavy and born for so long that if they were to rise, they would have to work and save that much harder than their fellow Americans. Rather than encouraging a greater understanding of how these disparities came to be, or a framework for compassion for fellow Americans, political discourse has usually reinforced prevailing stereotypes of a lazy inferior group getting undeserved handouts a scapegoating that makes the formal barriers all the more unjust and the resentments of white working-class citizens all the more tragic. The subordinate caste was shut out of the trillions of dollars of wealth accumulated through the appreciation of housing assets secured by federally insured loans between 1932 and 1962, a major source of current-day wealth, wrote the sociologist George Lipsitz. Yet they find themselves portrayed as privileged beneficiaries of special preferences by the very people who profit from their exploitation and oppression. Once labor, housing, and schools finally began to open up to the subordinate caste, many working and middle-class whites began to perceive themselves to be worse off by comparison and to report that they experienced more racism than African Americans, unable to see the inequities that persist, often in their favor. Unconscious Bias, a Mutation in the Software Toward the end of the 20th century, social scientists found new ways to measure what had transformed from overt racism to a slow boil of unspoken antagonisms that social scientists called unconscious bias. This was not the cross-burning, 
epithet-spewing biological racism of the pre-civil rights era, but rather discriminatory behaviors based on subconscious prejudgments by people who professed and believed in equality. By adulthood, researchers have found, most Americans have been exposed to a culture with enough negative messages about African Americans and other marginalized groups that as much as 80% of white Americans hold unconscious bias against black Americans, bias so automatic that it kicks in before a person can process it, according to the Harvard sociologist David R. Williams. The messaging is so pervasive in American society that a third of black Americans hold anti-black bias against themselves. All racial-ethnic minority groups are stereotyped more negatively than whites, Williams said. Blacks are viewed the worst than Latinos, who are viewed twice as negatively as Asians. There is a hierarchy of rank. What kind of person is likely to carry this kind of unconscious bias? This is a wonderful person, Williams said, who has sympathy for the bad things that have happened in the past. But that person is still an American and has been fed the larger stereotypes of blacks that are deeply embedded in the culture of this society. So despite holding no explicit racial prejudices, they nonetheless hold implicit bias that's deep in their subconscious. They have all these negative images of African Americans so that when they meet an African American, although self-consciously they are not prejudiced, the implicit biases nonetheless operate to shape their behavior. This discriminatory behavior is activated more quickly and effortlessly than conscious discrimination, more quickly than saying, I've decided to discriminate against this person. This is the frightening point, he said, because it's an automatic process, and it's an unconscious process. People who engage in this unthinking discrimination are not aware of it. They are not lying to you when they say, I didn't treat this person differently, and I treat everyone the same. They mean it, because consciously, that is the way they see themselves. These implicit biases shape their behavior in ways they are not even aware of. The research suggests that about 70 to 80 percent of whites fall into this category. These autonomic responses contribute to disparities in hiring, in housing, in education, and in medical treatment for the lowest caste people compared to their dominant caste counterparts and as with other aspects of the caste system, often go against logic. For example, a pioneering study by the sociologist Diva Pager found that white felons applying for a job were more likely to get hired than African Americans with no criminal record. In the life-and-death world of medicine, African Americans and other marginalized people are granted fewer procedures and poor quality care than whites across every therapeutic intervention, said Williams, who specializes in biases in public health. Of the 60 most common procedures reimbursed by Medicare, he said, African Americans receive fewer procedures than white patients, even though they have a higher rate of illness.
The only procedures that African Americans receive at higher rates than whites, Williams said, are shunts for renal disease, the removal of stomach tissue for ulcers, leg amputation, and the removal of testicles. Bias does not contain the damage it inflicts to one group, however. One tragic form of unconscious bias has had the unintended effect of unwittingly protecting the disfavored castes of African Americans and Latinos from a scourge that has brought untold heartache to many white Americans. Empirical studies have found that physicians often disregard the reports of pain from black and Latino patients, wrongly believing that African Americans, in particular, have higher pain thresholds. This has led physicians to undertreat or to deny pain medication to black patients, even those with metastatic cancer, while readily prescribing medication to white patients, reporting equivalent levels of pain. The disparity is so severe that African Americans as a group receive pain medication at levels beneath the thresholds established by the World Health Organization. Just as pollutants don't confine themselves to the air around a factory, this single-caste inequity has spared no one. The undertreatment of the subordinate caste leaves them to suffer needlessly, and the overtreatment of the dominant caste may have contributed to the rising mortality rate for white Americans who become addicted to opioids. Worse still, society was less prepared for the opioid crisis than it might have been had it not missed the chance to build a comprehensive framework for dealing with substance abuse in the 1990s, when it was the subordinate caste that was in need of help. The crack cocaine epidemic of that era was dismissed as an urban crime problem rather than addressed as a social and health crisis, considered a black problem rather than a human one. The response was to criminalize addiction when the abusers were subordinate caste, which swelled the rate of mass incarceration, broke up families, and left the country ill-equipped for the incoming tragedy of opioid addiction. Caste assumptions created devastation on both sides of the caste divide and have made for a less generous society overall. Exclusion costs lives up and down the hierarchy. The physician John M. Metzl, who has conducted research into the health of disaffected whites in middle America, has measured the life-and-death consequences of state decisions to withhold benefits seen as helping presumably undeserving minority groups. In the state of Tennessee, for example, he found that restrictive health policies may have cost the lives of as many as 4,599 African Americans between 2011 and 2015, but also cost the lives of as many as 12,013 white Tennesseans, more than double the loss sustained by black residents. In his book, Dying of Whiteness, Metzl told of the case of a 41-year-old white taxi driver who was suffering from an inflamed liver that threatened the man's life. Because the Tennessee legislature had neither taken up the Affordable Care Act nor expanded Medicaid coverage, 
the man was not able to get the expensive, life-saving treatment that would have been available to him had he lived just across the border in Kentucky. As he approached death, he stood by the conviction that he did not want the government involved. No way I want my tax dollars paying for Mexicans or welfare queens, the man told Metzl. Ain't no way I would ever support Obamacare or sign up for it. I would rather die. And sadly, so he would. Chapter 12 A Scapegoat to Bear the Sins of the World Every year on the Day of Atonement, the ancient Hebrews took two male goats and presented them before the Lord at the entrance to the Tent of Meeting. Then the high priest cast lots to determine the fate of each goat. One they would kill as a sacrifice to the Lord, to cleanse and make sacred the sanctuary. The other, the scapegoat, they would present to the Lord alive. The high priest would lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess upon its head all the guilt and misdeeds of the Israelites. All of their sins he would transpose to the goat, and the goat was then banished to the wilderness, carrying on its back the weight of the faults of the Israelites, and thus freeing the Israelites to flourish in peace. The goat was cast out to suffer for the sins of others, and was called the scapegoat. This was the ritual, according to Leviticus, that was passed down through the ages, adopted by the ancient Greeks. It survives not only in individual interactions, but within nations and castes. For the ancients, the scapegoat served as the healing agent for the larger whole. In modern times, the concept of the scapegoat has mutated from merely the bearer of misfortune to the person or group blamed for bringing misfortune. This serves to relieve others, wrote the Jungian psychologist Sylvia Brinton Pereira, to free the scapegoaters of their own responsibilities and to strengthen the scapegoaters' sense of power and righteousness. In a caste system, whether in the United States or in India or in World War II Germany, the lowest caste performed the unwitting role of diverting society's attention from its structural ills and taking the blame for collective misfortune. It was seen, in fact, as misfortune itself. Thus, the scapegoat unwittingly helps unify the favored castes to be seen as free of blemish, as long as there is a visible, disfavored group to absorb their sins. Scapegoating, as it is currently practiced, Pereira wrote, means finding the one or ones who can be identified with evil or wrongdoing, blamed for it, and cast out of the community in order to leave the remaining members with a feeling of guiltlessness, atoned at one. A scapegoat cast has become necessary for the collective well-being of the castes above it and the smooth functioning of the caste system. The dominant groups can look to those cast out as the cause of any fate or misfortune, as representing the worst aspects of society. The scapegoater feels a relief in being lighter, Pereira wrote, 
without the burden of carrying what is unacceptable to his or her ego ideal, without shadow. The ones above the scapegoat can stand purified and united with each other, feeling blessed by their God. In the American South, the designated scapegoat was expelled not to the wilderness, but to the margins of society, an attempted near-banishment from the human race. Many men and women in the dominant caste blamed the people they enslaved for poor harvests or for meager returns, called the people who worked as many as 18 hours a day for the enrichment of others lazy, and took out their frustrations on the bodies of those they held captive. The caste system spared no one in the scapegoat caste. When pregnant women were to be whipped, before binding them to the stakes, a hole is made in the ground to accommodate the enlarged form of the victim. A Mr. C. Robin of Louisiana wrote in describing what he had witnessed. The Negro becomes both a scapegoat and an object lesson for his group, the anthropologist Allison Davis wrote. He suffers for all the minor caste violations which have aroused the whites, and he becomes a warning against future violations. After the Civil War, Confederates blamed the people they had once owned for the loss of the war. Well into the 20th century, into the lifetimes of people among us today, lynchings served as a form of ritual human sacrifice before audiences, sometimes in the thousands. People drove in from neighboring states. Schools let out early so that white children could join their parents to watch men in the dominant caste perform acts of sadism on people from the subordinate caste before hanging them from the limb of a sycamore. Lynchings almost always occurred at the hands of persons unknown, performed in a collective way so that no one person could be blamed. Whites were unified in seeing the Negro as a scapegoat and proper object for exploitation and hatred, wrote Gunnar Myrdal, a leading social economist in the 1940s. White solidarity is upheld, and the caste order protected. As scapegoats, they are seen as the reason for societal ills. The scapegoats are blamed for a crime rate that they alone do not cause, and for drugs that they are no more likely to use than the dominant caste, but for which they are incarcerated at six times the rate as whites accused of similar offenses. Thousands of African Americans are behind bars for having been in possession of a substance that businessmen in the dominant caste are now converting to wealth in the marijuana and CBD industry. In the United States and in India, people in the dominant caste have blamed stagnant careers or rejections in college admissions on marginalized people in the lower caste, even though African Americans in the United States and Dalits in India are rarely in positions to decide who will get hired at corporations or admitted to universities. In the United States, it is a numerical impossibility for African Americans to wreak such havoc in employment and higher education.
there are simply not enough African Americans to take the positions that every member of the dominant caste dreams of holding. Notably, while affirmative action grew out of the civil rights movement fought by lowest caste people and their white allies, decades of analysis show that it is white women, and thus white families, rather than African Americans, who became the prime beneficiaries of a plan intended to redress centuries of injustice against the lowest caste people. Scapegoating nimbly obscures the structural forces that make life harder than it has to be for many Americans for the benefit of a few, primarily in the dominant caste. It blames societal ills on the groups with the least power and the least say in how the country operates, while allowing the larger framework and those who control and reap the dividends of these divisions to go unchecked. It worsens during times of economic tensions, when the least secure in the dominant group attacks a group in the minority for structural economic problems that actually harmed both, one social scientist observed, and that neither caused. The human impulse to blame a disfavored outsider group puts the lives of both the favored and disfavored in peril. On an autumn evening in October 1989, a suburban Boston couple expecting their first child that December were driving home from a childbirth class. The husband, 29-year-old Charles Stewart, was the reserved and ambitious store manager at a luxury furrier downtown. His wife, 30-year-old Carol Demetti Stewart, was a petite and gregarious attorney. They had bought a split-level house in the suburbs, and had already decided that if that baby was a boy, they would name him Christopher. They were both children of the dominant caste, who had risen from modest, blue-collar backgrounds. They had just celebrated their fourth wedding anniversary. That evening, they were driving home through the neighborhood of Roxbury, which had been the landing place for waves of European immigrants, and after World War II, became mostly black, poor, and working class ravaged by the war on drugs. The husband was behind the wheel of their Toyota and had taken a somewhat circuitous route. At a traffic light in the Mission Hill section, shots were fired, hitting the wife in the head and the husband in the abdomen, both at close range. The husband was in better shape than the wife, and he called police dispatch from his car phone. His wife died at the hospital of the massive wounds she sustained. Their baby was delivered in the wife's final hours, two months premature, and named Christopher, as his parents had wished. He lived for only 17 days. The night of the shooting, Charles Stewart told police that a black man with a raspy voice and wearing a jogging suit had forced his way into the car and had mugged and shot them. The tragedy triggered every deep-seated fear and horror in Boston and across the nation. The husband's desperate call to police dispatch aired repeatedly on television, as did video footage of paramedics pulling the mortally wounded wife from the Toyota. Outraged over an incomprehensible tragedy, the city went into action and began a massive manhunt. 
Mayor Raymond Flynn vowed to get the animals responsible and ordered every available detective diverted to the case. Officers combed Roxbury and stopped and strip-searched every man who fit the description, which meant almost any black man on the streets, hundreds of them. The hunt for a suspect became the near-singular fixation for weeks. The dragnet yielded a 39-year-old unemployed black man with a criminal record, whom Charles picked out in a police lineup. People began calling for the death penalty. For months, officials had paid little notice to inconsistencies in the husband's behavior, distracted as they were by a storyline tailored to their expectations. The night of the shooting, Charles had driven around aimlessly for 13 minutes while talking to dispatch, rather than heading back to the hospital that the couple had just left, claiming not to recognize any landmarks in the city he had lived in all his life. He never tried to comfort his wife, never called her name, according to Time magazine. In the ambulance to the hospital, he only asked about the seriousness of his own wound and never about his wife's condition. Not long before, he had taken out several insurance policies on his young and healthy wife. After his release from the hospital, he collected on one of them and promptly bought a new car, a Nissan Maxima, and a thousand-dollar pair of women's diamond earrings. It turned out that he'd been staying out late on Friday evenings and into the early morning hours to the consternation of his wife in the months before her death. He had been seen with a young blonde woman who worked summers at the furrier and whom he had arranged to phone him at the hospital, though she vehemently denied a relationship as the story broke. He had told friends he did not want the baby, that it would disrupt his climb up the social ladder. Those contradictory details were not powerful enough to dislodge the fixed assumptions about the case. But there had been a third person involved on the night of the shooting, and as Christmas approached, that person began to crack. It was the husband's brother, Matthew. Charles had planned ahead for Matthew to meet the car at a rendezvous site the night of the shooting. Before the brother arrived, Charles had stopped the car and shot his wife in the head, after which Charles pointed the gun at himself, intending to shoot his foot, but misfiring into his torso instead. Charles told his brother to take and dispose of Carol's jewelry and purse and the gun that Charles had used to kill her. This would make it look like the robbery he would later report to the police. But afterward, the brother's conscience began to plague him, and he told other members of the family. He said he thought he was helping his brother in an insurance scam when he got the parson gun, not in a murder plot. Word got back to Charles Stewart that his brother was planning to go to the police and testify against him in exchange for immunity. With the investigation closing in on him, the husband jumped to his death from the Tobin Bridge into the Mystic River that January. His brother Matthew later pleaded guilty to conspiracy and possession of a firearm, among other charges, and served three years in prison. In the end, 
the husband alone was responsible for the death of his wife. But the caste system was his unwitting accomplice. He knew that he could count on the caste system to spring into action as it is programmed to do, that people would readily accept his account if the perpetrator were black, believe the dominant caste man over subordinate people, focus on them rather than him, see the scapegoat caste as singularly capable of any depravity and would deflect any suspicion away from him. The story didn't even have to be airtight to be believed. It needed only to be plausible. Any sympathy would accrue to him and not the scapegoat caste, which bears the burdens of someone else's sins, no matter the protestations. The caste system had given Charles Stewart cover and endangered the life of Carol Demetti Stewart, as it had for white women in the Jim Crow South, where husbands and lovers knew that a black man could be blamed for anything that befell a white woman if the dominant caste chose to accuse him. This is not to say that any group is more prone to criminality or subterfuge than another. It is to say that one of the more disturbing aspects of a caste system and of the unequal justice it produces is that it makes for a less safe society, allowing the guilty to shift blame and often to go free. A caste system gives us false comfort, makes us feel that the world is in order, that we automatically know the good guys from the bad guys. It is possible that nothing could have saved Carol Stewart's life, given the man she was married to. We will never know. Had the husband not been able to depend upon the universal decoy of black criminality, had he not been able to count on the instinctive reviling of the lowest caste and the corresponding presumption of virtue of the dominant caste, had he not been able to correctly assume that the caste system would act on his behalf, Perhaps he might not have been as brazen. Perhaps he might have tried something else, divorce, for instance. Perhaps he might not have felt as free to attempt something so heinous. Perhaps the wife might not have been killed, their son not been lost, at least not that night and not in that way, if he thought the suspicion would rightly be trained on the actual perpetrator from the start context of white supremacy gusty renegade wow we so we stopped we're not at the end of a chapter we're in the middle of chapter 12 and there is a break point it restarts decades later in the years of anxiety after the 2016 election hmm yeah, we'll get to that later. So that's what we'll pick up at for the second audio segment. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate.
email address until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com lots of folks uh, wrote in this week popular book bestseller lots of folks are following along wish we were reading something better uh, one of the first emails I can start with uh, I'm so glad the person uh, sent me this report it's from just yesterday so I mean this is fresh off the presses uh, and this this to me says a lot because this book was just published this summer, like literally three months ago. This is not a book that's been out for a year or whatever. Like this to me says this was planned all of this around this book way in advance, like white supremacist type planning. We talk about they'll have plans that have been written down or stored on a file long time ago. That's what this feels like to me. So I'll read the report. Ava DuVernay back in director's chair for Cased, Netflix adaptation of acclaimed Isabel Wilkerson's bestseller. The report reads Ava DuVernay is set to direct, write and produce her first feature film for Netflix, an ad- adaptation of Pulitzer Prize winner Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson's New York Times bestseller, Cased, The Origins of Our Discontents. The project reunites DuVernay with Netflix executive Tindo Naginda after the two collaborated on A Wrinkle in Time, the 2018 Disney sci-fi adventure pick that cemented DuVernay as the first black woman to direct a live action film that grossed more than 100 million at the domestic box office. Through a multi-story structure, Case examines the unspoken <laughs> the unspoken system that has shaped America and chronicles how our lives today are defined by a hierarchy of human divisions dating back generations. DuVernay, Sarah Bremer, and Paul Garns are producing the project via Array Filmworks. DuVernay is no stranger to putting a lens on pertinent social issues that affect many people, especially those in the black community. She did so with 13th, the hard-hitting, critically acclaimed documentary that gives an in-depth history of systemic racism within the prison and justice system, as well as When They See Us, the limited series that gave a voice to the exonerated five black men who fell victim to such an unjust and broken system when they were wrongfully convicted of the brutal rape of a jogger in Central Park as adolescents. I will stop there. Uh, The... I guess, number one, how you feel on this in some way might be swayed about how you feel about Ava DuVernay, victim of racism, her body of work. Selma's in there, too. VGQ. Reading is more that would I just get that reading is more important than watching television for many, many reasons. Reading is more important than watching television for many, many reasons reasons. Uh, When I read this report, I said the same thing that the astute listener who sent me this uh, report about this book being made into a movie. I said, I screamed, why not the warmth of other sons? Award-winning book, substantially better 
book and I mean made for television it is all narratives it's not filled with quotes and Jane Elliott nonsense lots of narratives black people and storytelling oh made for Netflix you could focus focus on Ida Mae Gladney Dr. Robert Pershing Foster George Starling you could focus on these characters, do dramatizations, right, of the different scenes and what have you. She could talk about the drive out west. There's nowhere to stay. They don't allow niggers to stay in white hotels. You got to sleep on the side of the road or drive the whole way and almost drive off a cliff. You could dramatize all that. Why not the warmth of other sons? to Netflix I would be signed up to watch it I would be cheerleading warmth of other sons is coming on Netflix cows watch party let's do it this I can only say this would be for me confirmation this would be in the running for the worst book ever if we had not read the hate you give Nutricide. The wretched of the earth. Black love is a revolutionary act. <laughs> like she is fortunate, very fortunate that we read those books because that each week it just gets worse and worse and worse. Oh, and it's gonna be on Netflix. <laughs> Cancel my subscription right now. Seven two zero. Seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. If I'm, you know, being foolish in any way, please say so. Uh, if if you think, what are you talking about, Gus? Like. This is a fantastic book, or at minimum, maybe it's not a fantastic book, but there's certainly nothing noteworthy or strange about a book that literally was just published weeks ago, already being slated for a Netflix major release. If anybody else thinks there's anything at least curious about that, feel free to share or if you have other thoughts on the text. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, Henry in Chicago. All right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, I don't know if it's just my copy. Uh, I know you, we expressed this before about the footnotes, and it's just hard to trace the footnotes because uh, I have the Kindle version, and I'm sitting up here trying to trace the footnotes on some of these things that she had said in the in the previous reading in regards to um, black death rates have been historically higher than those groups, but even their mortality rates were falling year by year. And I didn't get a footnote for that. So I'm like, okay, where is she qualifying that? Uh, and then this, you know, white America, uh, white Americans uh, at midlife were dying in uh, a deeper rising number. Uh, that's that uh, I did find the Ann case, um, article that she was referencing, but I was just interested to see where these black death rates, uh, these black mortality rates were falling. So, uh, there was no footnote there, uh, or if I didn't see it, but I, I just don't like the way the footnotes are configured in my, in my Kindle. 
Um, Unconscious Bias and Mutation in the Software. What a title. Um, the research, is another one. The research suggests that 70 to 80% of whites have an unconscious bias against blacks, you know, and I did trace the footnote on that. It was from an interview from some, some man, possibly a white, white male, but I don't know. It was from an interview, not from a study, but from an interview. Um, the white man who died saying that I'm not paying for Obamacare, I'd rather die. Well, that's typical white, white people. Um, White people would rather die than see the system of white supremacy uh, in. So uh, I can I can believe in that. Um, the part where it says that uh, uh, the dominant caste uh, blaming marginalized people of the lower class uh, for stagnant careers and rejection in college ad- admissions. Uh, even though African Americans in the United States and Dallas and India are rarely in positions to decide who will get hired at corporations or admitted to universities. Um, this is a typical white, white, uh, white strategy uh, to, uh, it used to be, it used to be just non-white blacks who were uh, being blamed for uh, whites having unemployment rates. But, you know, now it's the, uh, now it's the immigrants and, you know, all of the, uh, non-white people uh, who come into this country. And uh, sometimes VGQ, uh, non-white black people fall into this as well. Uh, you know, we always blame immigrants for our low unemployment rates. But, you know, even before, you know, the so-called immigrants came into this country, uh, non-white black people have always been at the bottom or they always had the highest unemployment rate. So, whether immigrants are here or not, it's white people who basically decide whether we work or not. So, um, and I think I had one more on Okay, but uh, that's all I have of you, my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Uh, I think uh, I voiced my displeasure with the formatting of the footnotes. Uh, in this book, uh, as it relates to the warmth of other sons, uh, as I said, I have the ebook version of this. I have the ebook version of the warmth of other sons. Uh, they are both random house publications, same author, obviously the warmth of other sons, the footnotes are within the body of the text. Uh, meaning as you're reading, you'll see a number like he was talking about for the statistics for black mortality rates, where that sentence is. Bam number. Uh, if you have a Kindle or ebook version, you can click the number. It'll take you right to the footnote. You can read it. Oh, okay. Get the report book, whatever it is, write the information down, copy, paste, whatever you need. And then you can click that footnote and it'll take you right back to where you were in the book. So you can keep going. No problem. This book is not, he says he has uh, Henry in Chicago has the Kindle version. I have the ebook uh, version, which is slightly different, but Apparently, neither version has the footnotes in between, and that, for me, has greatly reduced the quality of the book. Uh, you can't immediately substantiate, you know, a reference. Uh, you can go back, and I mean, there is a note section in the ebook section that I have, but it's not. It's not even connected to a page per se. It's it'll just have like a sentence, like a short, not even a sentence. That's incorrect. It will have like a few words. 
uh, quoting from a chunk of text on wherever in the book, and then it will give you a reference. I just think that that's really not precise scholarship, and that is not an improvement. That's not the way that uh, The Warmth of Other Suns was published. Uh, it was great because there's so many references. You can go and check. And this book has substantially fewer references than The Warmth of Other. Not that she did less work, but just she didn't share as many reference sources for this book. So I am with you there. Not an improvement, and that would just add to <laughs> what is going on here uh, with all of this. Uh, let's see. I'm sprinkling the emails cause so many people, uh, emailed this week. So I'm trying to get those in as we go. So I got, that was one, right. Just with the movie Two. uh, Hey Gus, I wanted to bring your attention to the pronunciation of cased. It is pronounced the same as cast like you would have on a broken arm. We're all victims of racism. And I figured you would appreciate the correction also. Okay. That's MacBook pro. Yes. Yum, yum, yum. Almost there. Um, I said uh, maybe two weeks ago that maybe longer than that, I am deliberately saying cased as we read this book, because my view uh, cast as in a broken arm or cast as in a play, which he has referenced consistently throughout this book and in interviews about the book, uh, as well as cast as in cast a boat for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Uh, In my view, all of that is a little too closely connected, and I think some of that is being deliberately put forth, Uh, having cast be the title of this book. And, oh, yes, it came out right in the middle of our need to cast a presidential ballot. Uh, And, I mean, just all of it. Cast is, we don't really know, we didn't do this, we're just characters in a play and a cast. And we got, I mean, just all of it. So to combat that, I am deliberately saying cased for the book. I hope that does not cause confusion or any chaos or detract from people being able to read and follow along. Sneak in one more uh, email and then we'll get back to the phone line. Man, we had folks who emailed. I don't even know where some of these folks are uh, in the known universe. Um, Let's see. Person wrote in named Che. I hope you received my email sent in August. I explained in that message that this was my first attempt at contacting you. I said that since I live in Asia, I doubted there was anyone locally for you to be able to put me in contact with. I don't know about that, as you so graciously offered. And I had nothing else constructive in mind at the time or simply making the first contact. I said I would wait until something specific occurred to me before contacting you again. Thus far, I was limited to archived broadcasts and old broadcasts on the Cows YouTube channel. I just I only just discovered the cows at Black Talk Radio Network and saw that you are currently reading Cased by Isabel Wilkerson. My family practices Buddhism, and prior to discovering Mr. Fuller's code, I have been attempting to use Buddhism to construct a code for myself and my family for dealing with racism, white supremacy, in the same way that the Buddha used his Dharma as a code for confronting and overcoming Cased. In fact, what attracted me to Mr. Mr. Fuller's code initially was its semblance to Buddhism. In any case, I would like to hear this discussion. I've already subscribed to my email to receive notifications for the fourth broadcast on CASED. Uh, let's see. Okay, most of us just wanting to participate. Oh, and they wrote in again. Let's see. Make sure I get the other one. I wrote them back, gave them the information so they could participate. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, 
Okay, nothing more on the book. Hopefully we'll be able to get them to join in the discussion. I don't know if the time zones will make it. I was telling them, you know, it's a big time gap. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to include them in the dialogue uh, to hear their contributions, thoughts. Wow, we are slowly making a dent. More emails to come, but we'll pause here. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have thoughts, observations to share, uh, a line should be open. Proceed. Give folks a moment to get their thoughts together. Let's see. Uh, Next person, one of our other investors uh, who wrote in. Make sure I get all of the commentary from last week, because I think we had some folks who didn't get or didn't get everything that we included from last week. Okay, picking up from Chapter 11. In this chapter, the author provides a plethora of often used tactics in order to confuse non-white victims. Examples. Number one, racist man as victim or white sacrifice. Rising death rates of middle-aged white men and women, presumably. Number two, racial focal pointing, one of our terms, regarding working class whites. The preeminent social economist, Gutter Murdahl, suspected racist, they are people likely to stress aggressively that no Negro can ever attain the status of even the lowest white. So-called upper-class whites rape and torture non-white victims. Absolutely. And because of greater power, certainly have more effective means of subjugation. Number three, inaccurate metaphors comparing racist to a first-born child weaned she used the word weaned a number of times and i said are we talking about like newborn babies or are we talking about race soldiers what is going on here dylan roof was weaned that's the number four racist man racist woman racist child are unaware ignorant about racism the hand of the government in the lives of white citizens has often been made invisible and has left distortions as to how each group got to where they are allowing resentments and rivalries to fester yes indeed uh continue let's see number 12 a scapegoat to bear the sins of the world number one whites were unified in seeing the negro as a scapegoat and proper object for exploitation and hatred according to according to gunner murdoch a leading economist in the 1940s maintaining the global system of racism white supremacy is the great unifier for racist man racist woman and racist child number thir- uh, chapter 13 excuse me did, oh, did we get that far we did not get that far stop right there stop right there uh, still did not really make a dent in the emails but uh, I'll see if we can get in more of those as we proceed uh, I will only say about the let's see I will only say about the text pulling up my notes let's see the listener took the words right out of my mouth in terms of the amount of confusion like I'm appalled I'm appalled that this book is a bestseller why not having people at this time reading the ISIS papers Urugu white dog even would be better than this book like lots of Harriet A. Washington medical apartheid that's mentioned in the footnotes Uh, 
the half has never been told Edward Baptist. I can think of a lot of books that would be much, much better than this book, but all of the jargon and rhetoric to present white people as being unknowing idiots in this whole process. Uh, just let's see. Uh, the, she uses marginalized. She uses a lot of just really incorrect language that greatly minimizes white terrorism. Uh, I feel that just calling this case instead of racism is one point, but also uh, historically marginalized. What are you talking about? I said that consists. That's a word that should never be used. If we're talking about terrorism, call it that is marginalization. Is that what they call it when they talk about Nazi Germany? I've never heard that. Uh, let's see. When she talked about all the benefits that white people get from uh, cancer treatment, heart disease, all of that, all the advances in technology and medicine, I thought of Henrietta Lacks, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, that we suffer marginalized Henrietta Lacks, if you want to call it that. Uh, and then white people get to benefit from all of that technology and harvesting, raping her cells, as it was said in the book by one of her family members, so-called family members. Uh, the entire way that she talks about this uh, white resentment. I thought number one, uh, it's not poor white people. I don't think uh, our current president is in the class of poor white people. I know a lot of folks gawked about his tax release, but I don't think he's a poor down and out white person bumming a quarter who's upset about that no count Negro being in the White House for almost a decade. I don't think that's the case. And in fact, when we read, or we didn't read, pardon, or we had on the program Red Summer. Uh, Cameron McWhorter, suspected racist, but he talked about in his book, The Red Summer, tons of incidents of white terrorism where you had rich white people, poor white people. Sometimes it'd be the white governor and elected officials, highly elected officials, Ben Tillman types who would come and be coming out leading the charge, kill the Negroes, get them. Yes, we got to do it. Like you can go look at the photographs. You'll see some people out in their Sunday finest. They got their three piece suit on, got their stogie looking tough. Like they're not some big draggled toothless white person. Uh, that's out. They would be, have the pictures set up. Remember that's got to get these postcards sent out. These are not broke, uh, down and out white people. Stop pushing that lie. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, susceptible. She does it so many times. Let me give you the whole paragraph. Rising immigration from across the Pacific and the Rio Grande and the ascendance of a black man as president cowbell made for an inversion of the world as many had known it. And some of them might have been more susceptible. Look at that word susceptible. Let's look up that word susceptible. See what that means. Susceptible. Susceptible. Likely or liable to be influenced or harmed by a particular thing. Next, a per, of a person easily influenced by feelings or emotions. Now, if you got individuals who are dedicated to practicing racism, mistreating individuals on the basis of color, which is not arbitrary, but okay, if people are white people, individuals classified as white are dedicated to that. Are they influenced? Susceptible? 
haunts to be come back to that again. White people are victims of racism. I wrote that in the description. White people are harmed by racism. Again, this is the only crime where the perpetrators somehow get pulled into being victims of the crime that they perpetrated. We don't talk about Bill Cosby that way. We don't say that Bill Cosby is also harmed by committing all these rapes and sexual abuse. That's not the way we discuss things. And when it's black super predators, they don't say the Negro super predator is also harmed. He's also a victim victim of the mugging and raping and loot. They don't say that it's only when white people practice racism The perpetrator is also a victim of the crime. That is total nonsense. I've been saying that almost the entire time that we've been on the air. Watch that. Uh, Let's see. Here we go again. Same type of languaging by the middle of the 20th century, the white working class American, the white working. So what about the rich white people, the Ben Tillman's? What's their excuse for mistreating the Negro? Maybe they'll explain that on Netflix with footnotes. By the middle of the 20th century, the white working class American wrote the white Southern author Lillian Smith has not only been neglected and exploited, he has been fed little except the scraps of skin color and white supremacy as spiritual nourishment. What is every what have all the other whites in the known universe been fed again? What's their excuse? Because this is not just America. So what's their excuse in Germany? What's their excuse in Canada? What's their excuse in Brazil, France? The UK, Australia, global. So that's a huge problem. This this is a global system. And she's actually talking about other parts of the known universe. And it's still not being described as a global case system. Next, uh, let's see. Illusion. This is the same nonsense that we had in ta Coates, who is in the footnotes uh, for this section, uh, his big article on reparations uh but we read between the world and me back at the end of 2015 unless my memory is in error leading right into trump's triumph uh and he called them dreamers and sleepers talking about individuals classified as white and the same thought process that they're not aware they don't know about this they're unconscious the unspoken laws of white supremacy racism again James Lowen and that's not even I didn't say that that was a great book on racism it's got a lot of great information in it but I mean race relations I said that word is in that book about a thousand times not white supremacy race relations but in that book he said man the number of signs that says negra if you can read this sign run and if you can't read run that is not unspoken if you got it in the covenants that they can still locate in 2020 no negras are to rent in this in this neighborhood and no japs either that is not unspoken and that sort of these are just errors it's totally incorrect to say that in this way of speaking inaccurately about white supremacy racism is standard uh, when and particularly when it will be non-white people, sometimes white people, the Timothy Wises and such, they'll come out and talk in this way as though white people are just dupes. They're just ignorant. They've just been fed. They've been weaned all this from the crib and they just don't know. They're just actors. It's just a script and they got their play and they're just bumbling around and don't know and it just continued. It was that was all we got this week, basically. Let's see. Uh, 
bam, we go again. And I just want to say this book is, in my opinion, it's so bad. I feel so justified in whatever critique I want to make since they have fast tracked this to Netflix. It's so bad because it's a superficial exploration of really all of these topics. It's not really going into great detail about redline. It's much more detail in the warmth of other suns. It's not just the footnotes. It's the entire book is much more detailed. It's given much more time so that you can understand and get a fuller complexity of how white supremacy racism is practiced, even though she's not using the accurate terms in the warmth of other sons either, but there is a greater detail, a greater substance. This is just kind of quickly in a very superficial, sloppy and erroneous manner going through large swaths of history in this part of the world and other parts of the world where if you come into this and you don't have a solid, accurate framework for white supremacy, racism as a global system, This book will not help you. It will just confuse you and further really confuse you about what it means to be white. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Now the one I'm saying the American case system, which co-opted this class of white workers co-opted like pause right there. Again, that's making it. Are these just suckers? Like poor white people are the biggest dumb moron idiots in the universe and that the the powerful whites just come and trick them every time every time just blame it on the no that's not what's happening here at all i could be in error but you haven't even given me enough evidence to think so in this book she continues white workers nearly from the start being co-opted uh it drove such a wedge between black and white workers that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests who are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest, Dubois wrote. He's a victim of white supremacy. This is a hundred years ago. All of that. We just heard this uh, from Dr. Bartlow about poor working white people. This much time, we should not have confusion about what it means to be white. Whether you're poor, you have $5, whether you have $5 billion, it really only comes down to what does it mean to be classified as white? That's really the essence about what we're talking about. So-called white workers or whatever else you're talking about, they have an identity tied with being white. She skimmed over the affirmative action. She did get out the truth that, hey, the people that have benefited most are white women, white people in general. Absolutely. But that's not news. But the important part is who were the people that jumped up to oppose affirmative action? White women. Same group that voted for Trump in 2016, white women. What does that mean? She doesn't even include that in the text. In addition to that being another moment where she leaves out white women's role in racism. This is so heavy on white men and all the rest of it. Uh, Let's see. Mm -mm Next. See, some people from the groups that were said to be inherently inferior managed to make it to the mainstream, whatever that means, a few rising to the level of people in the dominant case. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) One of them in 2008 rising to the highest station in the land. Pause. There's no way. This is what I mean about this is sloppy and leaving out a lot of detail like I'm sure Isabel Wilkerson knows Carol Anderson. She might have even have her as a reference in the book, although I haven't seen her so far. 
white rage. That's just one easy one I could toss. President Obama, Dr. Welsing talked about it all the time for a reason, was subjected to historic levels of death threats. Historic levels. That's not making it to the level of the dominant case. Most white voters didn't vote for him either time. That's not making it to the level of the dominant case. When you have assassination plots like what happened to the governor in Michigan when that was happening on a daily basis for President Obama, according to white reports for the entire eight years, that's not making it to the dominant case. And the fact that she didn't include that either. I got to say, wow, Isabel Wilkerson is a lame like you didn't know about Carol Anderson's book. You didn't read about those death threats. You didn't hear Dr. Wilson talk about that or you just didn't think that was pertinent to include at this point. Your editor, even I got to be looking at them like, or you all got other objectives. That's not going to fit into the Netflix. I got it. I got it. Uh, Let's see. So she continuing from what I just read, this left some white working class Americans in particular, those with the least education and the material security that it can confer pause. You're doing the same thing that racism is poor down and out cracker Appalachian white people pause again. You work for the New York times for decades. 52% of white women voters voted for President Trump in 2016. That's across all economic backgrounds. That's not poor white men. That's not toothless white men. That's not West Virginia white people. That's 52% of white women voters across all socioeconomic spectrums. That does not in any way come close to what she's talking. That's why I said like this. It just gets worse every week. The only reason I would not be saying worse, but which is appalling. How do we go from the warmth of other sons in my top 10 to this and this, not the warmth of other sons is going to Netflix. It would be the worst book ever, except hate you give got your back. Thomas in New York, got your back. Black brother, black brother, uh, and nutricide. My God, the nutritional uncle Tom, uh, let's see. And thankfully, at least this book is well edited. I haven't ran across lots of spelling errors and the rest of that. So many reasons why this is not the worst, but it is certainly a really. And I even paused, man, I guess me and the fella at Black Agenda Report who wrote the review, a few of us have said, man, this is not a very good book. The general consensus is that this is an awesome book. It seems a lot of victims of racism think that this is an awesome book. If that is the case. That's another moment to pause about how bad this problem is in terms of white supremacy, racism, and how poor our understanding when we say that non-white people are confused about racism. How poor is our understanding? I would say you can gauge how many non-white people do you know think that this is a great book. They're excited for the Netflix release. I'll get in one more and then recheck the phone line. Let's see. Weaned, I already said that weaned. Are we talking about a newborn child being breastfed? Are we talking about race soldiers? Uh, Let's see. Oh, the belief. Let me get that. I'll do. I'll chat on that. And then I'll check on the caller. She says, uh, if the lowercase person manages actually to rise above an uppercase person again, I don't know what that would look like, but okay. The natural human response from someone weaned on their case's inherent superiority is to perceive a threat to their existence, a heightened sense of unease, a displacement of fear for their very survival, white genetic annihilation. If the things 
that I have believed are not true, then might I not be who I thought I was? That's a quote. I don't know where she quoted it from. That's what I mean about the footnotes, because I just feel like that's that's sloppy. Is that from a novel? Is that from Timothy Wise? Is that from Thomas Jefferson? Is that Jane Elliott? Like, who said that? It's in direct quotes. Like, anyway, the reason I highlighted that, it is often said that white people lie to themselves and they believe their own lies. Jane Elliott pushes that, that white, she says racism is an emotional commitment to ignorance. She's an admitted racist, so I expect her to lie. White people do not lie to themselves. They do not believe their own lies. The people, the suckers that are being duped, Gus T. Renegade and the other victims of white supremacy trying to figure out when they're lying and when they're not. White, you cannot be a master deceiver and then you're stumbling, fumbling, bumbling, lying to yourself, forgot which lies you told. You cannot be a master deceiver. You're a master deceiver. I am able to figure out. I am the one that controls the falsehoods here. I'm not confused. I do the confusing. White people do. And matter of fact, we talked about this. Dr. Martin Kevorkian, who I think is he and Dr. Niana Rasayan, the only two guests we've had in nearly 12 years who asked, whoa, what is that there cowbell, Gus? What does that what does that mean? That uh, ringing cowbell thing? What, what is that there? Dr. Kevorkian was asked, admitted white supremacist. He was asked, I believe it was 2016. I might be wrong. He was asked. We're talking about Frederick Douglass, about white people lying. I might make this the audio clip for next week, even though I think I've made this an audio clip before. He was asked about Frederick Douglass, the lie that black people are dumb and ignorant and they can't read and can't spell. And they better be thankful for slavery and white supremacy and everything else because they're too dumb to boil water or stand up straight. And he said white people knew that that's a lie. He said even back when Frederick Douglass found this out. Uh, he said they had done all this line, you know, black people can't read and all the rest of it. And Frederick Douglass found like, oh, white people, they knew that that wasn't true. They just said that to justify practicing racism because that's just what they want to do. That's what we have. And Dr. Gworkian, he took time to explain that that's the case, that white people know. Oh, yeah, we just make up things about the nigger, that they're a criminal, that they're a rapist, that they're a looter. And that's what we do. That's what white supremacy racism is. But we are not confused. The problem is not we have believed our own lies. The problem is we are dedicated to practicing racism. That is substantially different than saying white people have an emotional commitment to ignorance. I will pause there. Uh, number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, just wanted to stay on that context uh, because what is I think all of us have this in our our personal uh, context uh, that uh, they hear a lot of other non-white people uh, justify racism and white supremacy by saying that uh, this white person is dumb, this white person is silly, you know, that sort of thing as far as uh, when we uh, witness 
white people's behavior that uh, we understand as being racist. Uh, uh, and uh, that's, basically, that's basically what I'm hearing constantly uh, with, with uh, this particular book. Uh, and, and as far as her, her reports are concerned, I mean are concerned, uh, that it's primarily that, and now what she is doing is justifying, justifying that that particular behavior by it, it's it's based on ignorance and and uh, uh, silliness, nothing scientific at all, and uh, and I haven't heard the word codified <laughs> at all. I haven't now. Maybe somebody else may have heard it, but I haven't. I haven't heard. Uh, the means that white people practice racism on such a, a high level all over the world is that they are codified. Uh, uh, and I don't hear that. I, I haven't heard that yet at all. Uh, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that a white person has to have a superior uh, uh, mental understandings of anything. Uh, uh, there are some white people who are not, not really that smart, uh, but there are some white people who are smart. Uh, they're not wise, like Mr. Fuller says, but, but they are a, a percentage of white people who are smart. But, but there is a, the, mass, the mass majority of white people are codified on a global basis, and, she, and that's vitally important. But she doesn't state that. She doesn't state that at all. And uh, I would I would say that uh, someone who uh, had the a, a means to write the first book that we read certainly should have that understanding uh, of that white people. That reason why white people are so efficient in what they do when it comes to practicing racist white firms is because. They are guided by a universal code, and uh, that's not talked about at all in the book. Thank you. Re greetings, retired firefighter. Absolutely. Racism, white supremacy is not haphazard. You cannot dominate people all over the known universe for centuries unless you have rules and you update those rules they get dusty you know same way you have to update the code the codes policies and procedures on your job racists do the same thing uh other folks uh who dialed in if you have a hand up uh commentary to share uh line should be open <clears throat> can i be heard i heard both of you let's get uh mowing down okay well thank you uh thank you sir for you um, discuss, uh, uh, first of all, um, thank you for, for explaining why you choose to use the word case and not cast. Uh, I appreciate your rationale for it. I would not like to relate this book to, to the cast of a play or casting of a book or anything like that. So, um, I do, um, appreciate and respect your rationale for, 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 for Tailoring your word, tailoring your words the way that you do. Um, uh, not many notes. I wasn't 
Um, I'm not enjoying this book, but uh, some a couple of things stuck out to me. I was surprised that she used finally used the words um, white supremacy and black and Negro. Um, uh, she gets a gold star for that, I guess. Um, but moving ahead, um, the uh, 41-year-old taxi driver, I believe, uh, no way my tax dollars are going to Mexicans and welfare queens. Um, no way I'll sign up for Obamacare. I'd rather die. And sadly, he would, or sadly, he did. Um, he didn't sadly die. That was a choice. And um, he chose to uphold white supremacy. He wasn't choosing to uphold a caste system. Um, that reminded me of the, um, the reference you made to the individuals on the ship and who refused to, on the sinking ship and refused to touch the rope. A black person touched it. You know, that's a choice. Um, and that is upholding the system. Um, the, um, the the husband that was a furrier who blamed the death of his the murder of his wife on a the murder and mugging of his wife on a black man. That reminded me of a recent case um, of a of a white male who shot his child's mother, and he wore a prosthetic um, black mask, um, uh, and for for the longest uh, or, or for the beginning of that. Manhunt. Uh, the, the description of the suspect was a black male, uh, uh, and like I was interested in that because the police um, said just because the description was a black male, that doesn't mean they were looking for a black male. Uh, what I thought very, what I thought was very confusing. Um, uh, um, I didn't, um, I I didn't appreciate the quote uh, that that she wrote. Um, the only person hurt. In this, um, in that murder or in that crime, was was the wife, because there were potentially hundreds of black men um, in the in the streets that that they were ended up strip searched and frisked and arrested and patted down. I think they even um, retained a suspect, thirty nine year old man with a criminal record. Um, and if it wasn't for his brother in law selling him out. Or, or having morals, however you want to reference it, um, he might he might have gotten away with it, um, and he didn't um, assume um, that the uh, that the system would 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 uh, believe him. He had confidence. He knew that if I said a black man did it, um, then, then then the search would be averted from him. Um, uh, also, I believe that um, the, the 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 rise and the deaths and, uh, of of middle class um, uh, white men um, directly affected the deaths uh, or the non deaths of, of the black population because there were less people to kill them. That's just a personal opinion. Um, thank you. That's all I have on me, my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas, Thomas in New York. I'm coming right to you. Uh, just the the report that he mentioned. Uh, they got blackface killer. This is in the uh, Sun. I posted it on my Facebook page earlier this week. Blackface killer, white dad disguised himself as black man to stab his baby's mom to death after bitter custody battle. Andrew Charles Beard, 33, turned himself in to police in the Dallas. Oh my God, that's one of uh, <laughs> Mo in Dallas's neighbors. Uh, suburb of Carlton that's probably a sundown town on Monday morning after a warrant was issued for his arrest on the murder of 24 year old Alisa 
Burkett, the Dallas Morning News reported Burkett was shot in the head and stabbed repeatedly in her torso and arms just after 9 a.m. on October 2nd last week, basically, at an apartment complex where she worked as a manager. Police said in an arrest warrant affidavit obtained by the outlet that Beard allegedly disguised himself as a black man during the attack. Witnesses interviewed by the police described the suspect as a black man who parked outside the apartment's front office and fired a gun at the driver's side window of Burkett's car. Cops also found two bottles of dark liquid makeup, makeup wipes, and a fake beard in a trash bag in a Ford F-150 belonging to Beard. I'll stop there. I did post this on my Facebook page. I'll post it again if you want to check it out. And before I get to Thomas in New York, I'm taking her gold star back because the term white supremacy is in the book, but it is a direct quote from another author. So it's not even her technically saying white supremacy, no gold star for her. Thomas in New York proceed, sir. Thank you for your patience. Yes, man. I once watched the movie, man. I remember I begged my mother to take me to the movie theater see a movie called Soul Man where this uh, white boy takes some pills and just bought, uh, putting it into context now. Um, go stab his wife. Wow. Um, we had a guest before Gus, Black Secret Service officer who protected the Obamas and confirmed some of those assassination attempts. Um, so, you know, that, that, that as well. Um, and I believe he wrote a book about his experience as a black secret service officer. So I think that some of that stuff is in his book. Um, man, this book is, uh, my, my notes are a little all over the place because I was walking and um, listening. And, um, this book is a book of deception and confusion. Um, and in my opinion, she's doing this willingly. Maybe he's to take advantage of the times, the protests, and you know, I don't know why, but it's it's just um, the election. I, I don't know. Um, I challenge the implicit bias. To me, that's nonsense. I believe it's all being done because they have the power to do it. You know, that's why it's being done. It's no implicitness. Keep tapping. Um, she doesn't, in my opinion, believe the stuff she's writing. Um, how do we go from talking about the caste of the planters and the colonialists to the creation of the white race to briefly talking about how the white race was set up within that caste of white race? And then um, we get into um, how it was designed to keep blacks out at all costs. Um, no way you could get in there if you're black. Then to go to giving us examples of how white supremacy, racism, white supremacy keeps happening to blacks exclusively from white people um, to black people who's not in that caste. So, um, therefore, you're not talking about the same thing. Um, the white people didn't want black people to move into the neighborhoods regardless of the caste the white people were in. didn't matter what caste they were in. You know, you can't move into that trailer park. Uh, right there, it didn't matter. Uh, white people got pain medication that wasn't given to blacks, regardless of the cast the white person was in. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. You know, that nigga ain't getting no um, 
Percocet, but you can. Uh, black people don't get the same care as whites across the spectrum, right? Which leads to the legs getting cut off. doesn't matter the cats, you know, uh, which leads to the stents being put in. The one surgery she named testicle removal happening exclusively to black males. I was thinking a Welsing moment. Um, now, she's making me mad as we keep going. I was walking in and she's just making me mad as I'm taking those. Uh, we go, it's going beyond the bad, terrible comparison to the Holocaust, to the Hindus, to now this willing act of deception and confusion, uh, giving crystal clear, perfect examples of blatant white supremacy, um, and making these things into caste instead of white supremacy. Is, is, to me, is being done intentional. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this replaces whiteness studies once Trump removes them. They're already going to have white caste studies, um, you know, once he removes the curriculum, which he said he's going to do. Um, the scapegoat, I bet her husband was Jewish. There's a lot of Jewish stuff in this book. Um, but according to that story, black people are not the scapegoats. We're the, we're the goat that gets slaughtered. You know, we don't get the paddle on the back and, all right, nigga, go ahead and, you know, take our sins and go live and go live free. No, we don't get that. We get slaughtered, you know. So this a terrible example to me. Um, I thought this book was going to explain the caste within white people's society, which is something we don't get privileged to. And um, But this book just makes the argument that whites set up caste so that blacks can never enter it. Um, and yet, we're not in the caste constantly getting <laughs> bearing the point of racism. It's, I just don't see how you could put two things in the same context and spin it. And I've noticed on um, a few people who's doing this book and book reading studies, and I'm appalled. Uh, even the ADOS people, I lost a couple of their YouTubes because they're doing the book. And, oh, my God, this is so great. And I'm thinking, are they serious? Um, you know, but um, this whole thing is just not logical. The, the, the way she's putting all this together it's racism, but just keep it simple. You know, you, you're, to me, this is a, a form of white validation. When you're, you're not going to, to, to make white people feel more comfortable, you're not going to call it what it is. You're going to make up a whole story about it being something it's not. And being that they're similar, tired of things together, and, you know, to me, she's doing this willingly. I'm with my mom, Justin. Wow. <laughs> I said that I said this is this is a bestseller. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. It's being read by many folks, many book clubs and such, reading more important than watching television. But I, my general sense is that people think this book is awesome. Like Isabel Wilkerson is killing it. Case. Woo. And <laughs> I can only say again, what does Fuller have page one? If you don't understand white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works, everything else will confuse you. And I can only say the inertia, the number of people who've called into this program, brother Gus, how you doing? Maybe you should change the name of the cows, that white supremacy thing. I don't like, we've had tons of guests come on the front. I don't like that white supremacy. I don't say that, you know, race. I don't think racism we need to get another term you know calling it that in fact we don't even need to call them white 
you know, let's call them something. That is the general inertia uh, in this system because that benefits the system of white supremacy. Let's not call it white supremacy. Let's find something else. White privilege. Yeah, that's a good case. That's an even better one. I love it. Dominant. Exactly. We can take it off of all of that. Dr. Welsing used to emphasize this is about mistreatment on the basis of skin color. White genetic annihilation. It is not arbitrary. She had, I keep saying that she's got that word in this book over and over. It's not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. There's a reason we got Albano affairs on the compensatory call in reading being more important than watching television. Before I, we get to the second audio segment, she writes, people drove in from neighboring States schools let out early so that white children could join their parents to watch men in the dominant case. Is it not men and women? Have we not had white women on the context of white supremacy, talk about the role of white women and their presence at lynchings. Carolyn Mosby Bryant, lyncher and liar at Emmett Till. I think we had guests, Keith Beauchamp, come on the programs. Oh, yeah, I think she was present at this lynching. Dr. Curry talked about that. That's been one of the ways that white historians have practiced racism to consistently erase the role of white women and the practice of racism, even lynchings again in this book. But anyway, dominant case males perform acts of sadism on people from subordinate case before hanging them from a limb of a sycamore. She says lynchings almost always occurred at the hands of persons unknown. That's what I mean about this book is a disservice. There's no footnote right there. I'm Gusty Renegade. I've been hosting this program for 12 years. As soon as I saw that at the hands of persons unknown, bang, that is Philip Dre at the hands of persons unknown, the lynching of black America. I can just turn around to my library, boop, 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 pull out that book. I didn't just, this is one that I'm not just like uh, babysitting. Like I've actually cracked this one. It is pretty thick, but wow, what is in this book? So I'm just flipping to one of the pages that I marked. Let's see. Blacks, although threatened with violence, if they attempted to, didn't say lower cased. Blacks, although threatened with violence if they attempted to vote, largely remained defiant, insisting they would not forfeit the franchise. In response, whites raised their enemies' offices through eggs at Republican speakers and off and shot off cannon in close proximity to Republican allies, a form of intimidation known as Democratic Thunder. The environment became so volatile, Governor Russell could not even appear in public to make a campaign speech. There were several threats to assassinate him. At least one actual attempt at a railroad depot in Loringburg shortly before the election, red shirts on horseback surrounded Russell's train and demanded his surrender. The governor avoided detection and probably saved his own life by hiding behind a trunk in the baggage car. In support of their own candidate, Charles B. Acock, North Carolina, the Democrats staged massive rallies, such as one at Burlington, where town fathers shut down the cotton mills for the day so employees could attend. A throng of humanity entered a parade ground to the music of a brass band thumbing Dixie. Woo! That is the cow's theme song. That's why I highlighted this portion and other favorites. Favorites, they said. That's my favorite. As dignitaries rode past on a float filled with women in flowing crinolines sitting beneath a banner that read in all capital letters, white supremacy protect us. 
the crowd heard a sampling of strident Democrat oratory, then sat down to what must have been one of the largest picnics in American history, 142 lambs and pigs roasted and served on a single table, 516 feet long and four feet wide. Winchesters, Colts and Smith and Wessons were everywhere in evidence, said a newspaper account of one North Carolina Democratic rally. In a parade beside the humble laborers could be seen the banker, merchant, lawyer, the poor white people. Wait a minute, Isabel Wilkinson. I thought it was the poor one tooth white person. Let me get it again. And she quote, that's what I mean. You can't be ignorant because you're quoting this book. You're not ignorant. So if it's not ignorance, why is this information being presented in such a poor, erroneous manner? Let me finish what's in at the hands of persons unknown, which I would rather be rereading. Uh, in the parade beside the humble laborers could be seen the banker, merchant, lawyer, and others in every sphere of life, all animated and enthused over the same spirit, purpose, the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxons. And that's quoted from the newspaper from the day. I'm going to close the book right there. This is a quality book on white supremacy racism at the hands of persons unknown the lynching of black America Philip Dre P-H-I-L-I-P-D-R-A-Y spectacular read now if you read this book which is maybe should be in my top 10 and you got it the, uh, the, half, the half has never been told. We read that Edward Baptist and medical apartheid, which is also in my top 10. The references for this book alone, white by law, Ian Hani Lopez, the history of white people, Dr. Nell Irvin painter, the references alone. It's no excuse for this book to be so lame unless it was done so deliberately. <sighs> I was going to stop there, but it's one more important point. She's talking about this Charles Stewart thing. She mentions he was having an affair with a young blonde woman. I thought that was important. Just added a bit of detail in a book with so little detail and so superficial at so many points to mention the height of the hierarchy, a young blonde woman. All right. So we got that extra bit of detail, but then She says, in the end, the husband alone was responsible for the death of his wife, but the caste system was his unwitting. There's that word. I got to count. See how many times that word is in here. Uh, The the ignorant accomplice. He knew that he could count on the caste system to bring into action as it's programmed to do that people would readily accept his account if he, the perpetrator, were black. Excuse me, his account if the perpetrator were black. That's one like ignorance, ignorance, it's not even ignorant white people, the unwitting case system, like, come on. But the more egregious part, the case, the case system had given Charles Stewart cover and endangered the life of Carol Damati Stewart as it had for white women in the Jim Crow South, where husbands and lovers knew that a black man could be blamed for anything that befell a white woman in the dominant, if the dominant case chose to accuse him pause right there the case system the Jim Crow South endangered the life of white women I'm a pause again the most fam- well, one of the most famous books in the history of the United States 
is To Kill a Mockingbird. That book, which we have not read, Harper Lee, but I have read and seen the movie, that book, it's on Netflix, I bet, that book does not show white women being endangered by the Jim Crow South. It's the exact opposite. I'm a white woman. I can practice racism. Nigger, come here. Penetrate me. That's rape. Forced penetration. Dr. Curry talked about that. The man not. Top 10. It wasn't, I'm in danger. I'm about to die. It was, I can lie and make up whatever I want to and get a whole town of white people behind me to kill a black person, which is how that movie ends. Maybe the white woman lied. Maybe she didn't, but the nigger is found guilty and killed. The end. And we got a good white fella who defended them all the way. That is a dangerous lie. Like I said, this book is rife with that to just present. It's white men. It's white men at the lynching. It's white men who do the raping. It's white men. It's white men. And then you go come back with the other side of the double whammy that white women, oh, they're in danger. White women like Jane Elliott, they're not racist. Their life is in danger by the Charles Stewarts of the kid. <laughs> Woo. It would be one of the war. It's certainly dangerous. This is one of the most dangerous books I've read. If this is that popular and it's so bad and erroneous in how it's presenting white supremacy, racism, what it means to be white, it's beyond. It's just not using accurate terms like, wow, I say all the time, one of the worst errors, we consistently minimize the role of white women. This is flagrant. I will stop there. I could add more horrendous book, horrendous book, and probably deliberately so. We will resume context of white supremacy. Isabel Wilkerson's straight trash cased the origins of our discontents. We will pick up with part two. Decades later, in the years of anxiety after the 2016 election, Anthony Stephen House, a 39-year-old project manager in Austin, Texas, was getting ready to take his 8-year-old daughter to school. It was just before 7 in the morning on March 2, 2018. Something prompted him to go to his front door, and when he stepped over the threshold, he noticed a package on the porch. As he picked it up, it exploded. He died shortly after his arrival at the hospital. His death was ruled a homicide for obvious reasons at first, but the investigation quickly pivoted away. House was African-American, living on the working-class, black and Latino east side of Austin with its aging ranch houses and ramblers. The police figured that the bombing might be drug-related, Maybe it was intended as retribution for a drug dealer, but left at the wrong house. They considered another possibility, that maybe he had detonated the bomb himself, a theory that blamed the victim for his own death. We can't rule out that Mr. House didn't construct this himself and accidentally detonate it, in which case it would be an accidental death, Assistant Police Chief Joseph Chacon said. Based on what we know right now, Brian Manley, then interim police chief, told reporters the day of House's death, we have no reason to believe this is anything beyond an isolated incident that took place at this residence, and in no way this is linked to a terrorist attack. Those assumptions would prove to be tragically misdirected. Ten days later, 
17-year-old Draylen Mason, a high school senior who was a beloved bass violinist with the Austin Youth Orchestra, discovered a package outside his family's door. When he brought it inside, it exploded in the kitchen, killing him and leaving his mother critically wounded. They, too, were African-American. Later that morning, a few miles away, a 75-year-old Latina, Esperanza Herrera, was critically injured when a package left at her mother's house detonated when she picked it up. It was only then, ten days after the first bombing, that the Austin police began warning citizens to take precautions with unknown packages. A serial bomber was at large in Austin, had been at large from the first bomb attack. The bombings were now being considered a possible hate crime. The fact that the victims were black and Latina meant that some people could distance themselves from the bombings if they chose, until the bomber expanded his reach. Less than a week later, on the other side of Austin, two white men in their twenties were walking in a well-to-do white neighborhood when a bomb triggered by a tripwire detonated in the street and seriously injured them. Two days after that, a bomb exploded on a conveyor belt at a FedEx warehouse, and another was discovered at a FedEx before it could detonate. The police now raced at warp speed. Surveillance cameras caught images of the man who had dropped off the last package bombs and recorded the license plate on his car. The police began tracking him by the location of his cell phone. They discovered that the suspect was a 23-year-old unemployed white man named Mark Condit, who was from a conservative Christian family. The day after the explosion at the FedEx warehouse, a SWAT team closed in on him. Cornered by officers, Condit detonated a bomb inside his car and blew himself up. Spectacular police work had brought the bomber down within 24 hours, aided in no small part by the suspect's own change in tactics, but also by their taking swift action once the cast blinders were removed. The police chief apologized to black citizens and to the family of the first victim, who had been portrayed as a suspect in his own death. But African-American residents, the scapegoat cast, were left with lingering questions, questions whose answers they lived with every day. Why had the police paid little heed when the first bombs killed or harmed people of color? Why had they disregarded the potential threat? Why did authorities wait ten days to warn the public? Why did they let precious time pass, blaming the first victim for his own death? How messed up is it that police can make it seem like the person did it themselves? Fatima Mann, an advocate for poor families in Austin, told the Washington Post. It's insulting and offensive and tiring. A scapegoat, like the man who was the first to die in Austin, is seen by definition as expendable. People can come to disregard the predicaments facing people deemed beneath them, seeing their misfortunes as having no bearing on their own lives seeing whatever is happening to them as, say, a black problem, rather than a human problem, unwittingly endangering everyone.
In late 2013, a wicked contagion resurfaced in the coastal nations of West Africa. An 18-month-old boy died in a village in Guinea. His mother, grandmother, and sister soon died after suffering the same hemorrhagic symptoms of Ebola, among the most dreaded diseases known to man. Mourners who flocked to the grandmother's funeral carried the virus back to their own villages, and from there, Ebola began decimating families and hamlets in Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, and killing the doctors who were treating the sick. Anyone with the least exposure had to follow an elaborate hazmat protocol virtually out of science fiction and still fear that the exposed tip of a finger cut might condemn them to a virus that assured an agonizing death and for which there was then no widely proven vaccine. It raged through West Africa as the Western world looked on mostly with pity and detachment. What a continent of sorrow! through the Western lens. These were countries siphoned of their populations during the transatlantic slave trade, then conquered and colonized, and now still recovering from the destabilization and wars that these upheavals had wrought. To those at a distance, the sad circumstances of these countries, from primeval health systems to ancient burial rites, had brought this plague upon them. The virus spread through contact with the bodily fluids of an infected person who was showing symptoms, and people infected were to be quarantined in isolation wards. But some villagers despaired of being apart from their loved ones in their last days and chose to stay with them or, unable to get them to a hospital from the villages, had tried to care for sick loved ones themselves there was an admirable closeness in their family ties that transcended disease. For this, they were blamed as well. Far from the villages, dehumanizing photos of dying patients, images that at times deprived them of dignity in their final hours, stretched across the pages of Western newspapers. It was a distant sadness for many Westerners, if any emotion registered at all, from the safe comfort and buffer of sea and ocean. Thousands of people were dying, and courageous Westerners, like Doctors Without Borders, flew in to help. But the full artillery of Western science had not stirred to action. This was a problem for Africa, seen as a place of misfortune, filled with people of the lowest caste, not the primary concern of the Western powers. But the virus did not recognize race or geography, and in the late summer of 2014, several American aid workers contracted the virus while in the afflicted region. Alerted to the existential threat, the United States sent millions in aid and 3,000 troops to help with infrastructure and security. Then, in September 2014, a man boarded a flight from Liberia to Brussels en route to Dallas, to reunite with his partner and son. Unbeknownst to him, he was carrying the virus. He became the first case of Ebola in the United States. A Dallas hospital, unprepared for a virus identified with another hemisphere, sent the man home with antibiotics when he showed up complaining of symptoms, 
He later returned in worsened condition, and he died within ten days of his eventual diagnosis. Soon afterward, two of the nurses who had cared for him contracted the virus. Panic set in as news reports retraced the whereabouts of one of the nurses in the days preceding her diagnosis, after it was discovered that she had been on a commercial plane and had traveled to and from Cleveland. Days later, cable news channels interrupted regular programming to show her being transported on live television to a flight from Dallas to Atlanta for specialized treatment. The scourge that had seemed a problem of another planet was now in the United States. That October, shortly after the first diagnosis on American soil, and nearly a year after West Africans had been left to manage largely on their own with the help of volunteer health workers, the Food and Drug Administration arranged for an American pharmaceutical company to begin emergency research into an antivirus for Ebola. Eight more people would be diagnosed within months in the United States, their care and condition closely monitored in the news. The 2014 epidemic struck 28,000 people and killed more than 11,000 in the largest outbreak of Ebola the world had ever seen. The virus brought the interconnectedness of the planet into vivid, terrifying relief. Distance and geography could contain Ebola for a time. But Ebola did not recognize race or color or caste or national origin. A human being was a human being, and a prospective new host to a frighteningly efficient virus. The contagion had initially not been seen as the global human crisis it was. Those suffering were West Africans with ill-equipped health systems, a hemisphere away. But Ebola, and potentially planet-wide catastrophes like it, as the world would discover beyond imagining six years later, have a way of reminding human beings that we are all indeed one species, all interwoven, more alike than different, more interdependent on one another than we might otherwise want to believe. Ebola had been merely a whispered forewarning of what was to come. Chapter 13 The Insecure Alpha and the Purpose of an Underdog The West Highland Terrier had been acting up since the divorce. He was just over a year old and had begun nipping and snarling once the presumed pack leader, the first husband, was no longer around. The Westie had not taken the upset to the social order in the household very well, feared his world had collapsed, his survival in danger, and had communicated his displeasure to the old Alpha, the first husband, by nipping his nose once during a brief visit. I had to figure out what to do if I were to keep the Westie, which, to me, was the only option. I decided I had nothing to lose by consulting a canine behaviorist and found a Westie specialist who lived in California. I was expecting a list of instructions from her on how to better manage my terrier. What I got was a brief lesson in canine hierarchy and in how canines interact with one another, exert dominance or submission for the survival and wellness of the pack. 
the social hierarchy and vocabulary of wolves and canines runs throughout our culture. Alpha male, underdog, lone wolf, pack mentality, in part due to our observations of the dogs we may have owned, and to the seeming parallels between ourselves and this companion species of social animals. Current-day canine specialists have sought to correct the distortions of the term alpha male, the king-of-the-world chest-beater of popular imagining, that have worked their way into our psyches. True alphas, the behaviorist told me, are fearless protectors against outside incursions, but they rarely have to assert themselves within the pack, rarely have to act with aggression, bark orders, or use physical means of control. While I would never strike a dog or yank a choke chain as I've seen other would-be alpha humans treat their dogs, my forbearance alone was not working, and neither were the shrieks of no, no, no when I found Chi-Chi chewing on another pair of slingbacks. See, that's what humans do, the behaviorist said. We treat them like children, but as pack animals, they respond to the cues of an alpha in a pack structure. A human alpha should never have to raise her voice. Dogs don't understand that. If you're having to raise your voice to get their attention, she said, a dog will not see you as the leader. You've already lost. A true alpha does not behave like that and doesn't have to. If a so-called alpha resorts to that, they are signaling that they are not in control at all. True alphas command authority through their calm oversight of those who depend upon them. They establish their rank early in life and communicate through ancient signals their inner strength and stewardship, asserting their power only when necessary. An alpha generally eats first, decides when and who will eat afterward, inspires trust through firm shepherding for the safety and well-being of the pack. An alpha is not necessarily the biggest or fastest, but usually the innately self-assured one, who can chastise a pack member with a mere look or a low voice. A true alpha wields quiet power, judiciously apportioned. You know that you are not seeing a true alpha, or put another way, you have encountered an insecure alpha, if he or she must yell, scream, bully, or attack those beneath them into submission. That individual does not have the loyalty and trust of the pack and endangers the entire group through his or her insecurities, through his or her show of fear and lack of courage. The behaviorist gave me a set of assignments to establish my role, and assured me that once my Westie saw me as the Alpha, the relationship would be reset, very likely for good. The main goal was to bring order and consistency, firmness, to my compassion. The first exercise was to let him know who controlled the means of his survival, the food. At the next feeding, I was to set the food bowl down, holding on to it, and then remove the bowl to let him know my role before setting it down again for him to eat. He was at first unsettled by this new move, but adjusted to it. For the next exercise, 
I was to keep my hand on the food bowl the entire time he was eating. This he settled into as well. The last exercise was for me to set the food bowl down, hold the bowl, and then put my hands in the food as he ate to let him know that I was not afraid of him or of what he might do. This I was not looking forward to. You've seen the size of a Westie's teeth, haven't you? I asked when she gave me this instruction. I know, she said. He will not bite the hand that feeds him. When the time came for that last exercise, I set the bowl down and kept my hands in the bowl as he ate, and I discovered that there is a reason why dog behavior is built into our language. Dogs, for sure, and people, if they are wise, do not bite the hand that feeds. The behaviorist also recommended that I consider getting another dog. Westies are a particularly social breed, and he would fare better with a companion. As much as I love Westies, I felt one spirited terrier was enough and looked for a gentle, easy going breed. Enter Sophie, the Havanese. She was a three pound mop of fur that, as a puppy, could fit inside my purse. I took Chi Chi with me when I went to get Sophie, and he was fine with her at first until we got her home. Uncertain as to what this intruder meant for the household structure, he began asserting himself as the Alpha. If ever I looked away, he hunted her down under dressers and cabinets. At feeding time, he pushed her from her food bowl. One day, he went to shove her from her food bowl, and she stiffened on alert and glared at him looming above her and she let out a tinny, barely audible growl, the first sounds ever to escape from her. Chi-Chi jumped, startled by this turnabout. His ears and ego flattened. He slinked back to his own food bowl with his tail between his legs. From that day forward, Sophie was in charge. From then on, it was she who would eat first, walk through doors first, remain a pace ahead of him at all times on walks. Though she was only half his size once full-grown, she could pin him to the wall to keep him in line if she chose to, and whenever she corrected or corralled him, he stepped back and submitted, and then nudged her to play. The Westie had been an unconvincing and ill-suited alpha, but made for a relaxed and contented beta tail-bouncing, light-hearted and free. He came to adore Sophie and was watchful of her. Now that the hierarchy between them was settled and everyone was in positions that suited their strengths, there was order and peace in the household. We owe our misperceptions about alpha behavior to studies of large groupings of wolves placed into captivity and forced to fight for dominance or to cower into submission. In nature, wolf packs are more likely to consist of extended family systems, packs of between 5 and 15 wolves, led by an alpha male and an alpha female, whom the pack trusts and has reason to trust for the survival of them all. The main characteristic of an alpha male wolf is a quiet confidence Quiet self-assurance, Richard McIntyre, 
a researcher of wolf behavior at Yellowstone National Park, told the ecologist Carl Safina. You know what's best for your pack. You lead by example. You're very comfortable with that. You have a calming effect. The other members of the pack, the various beta and gamma wolves, can thus go about their tasks with greater reassurance in the wisdom of the Alpha. At the bottom of the hierarchy is the Omega, the underdog, the lowest-ranking wolf, arising from natural personality traits in relation to others in the pack. The Omega generally eats last and serves as a kind of court jester who acts as an escape valve, often picked on by the other wolves. He bears the brunt of the tensions they face in the wild, where they are subject to attack from predators or from rival packs, and during lean times in the hunt for prey. The Omega acts as a kind of social glue, allowing frustration to be vented without actual acts of war, wrote a wolf conservationist. The Omega is so critical to the pack structure that when a pack loses its Omega, it enters into a long period of mourning, the conservationist observed, where the entire pack stops hunting and just lays around looking miserable, as if there were no longer a reason to go on. The loss of the Omega can threaten social cohesion and put the entire pack at risk. Depending on the composition of the pack, an Omega might not be easily replaced. The new Omega would mean a demotion for one of the lower to mid-level pack members. Either way, the pack is destabilized. After all, these roles are not artificially assigned based upon what an individual wolf looks like, as with a certain other species, but emerge as a consequence of internal personality traits that surface naturally in the forming of a pack. Humans could learn a lot from canines. The great tragedy among humans is that people have often been assigned to or seen as qualified for alpha positions, as CEOs, quarterbacks, coaches, directors of films, presidents of colleges or countries, not necessarily on the basis of innate leadership traits, but historically on the basis of having been born to the dominant caste or the dominant gender or to the right family within the dominant caste, the assumption being that only those from a certain caste or gender or religion or national origin have the innate capacity or deservedness to be leaders. This is a tragedy not just for the many overlooked alphas from marginalized groups whose talents have gone untapped or unrecognized, who have had to watch organizations founder under insecure or ill-suited alphas. It is a tragedy not only for the misplaced alphas who may be in over their heads and who struggle to lead disgruntled staffs that may not respect them. It is a tragedy for humankind, which is deprived of the benefit of natural alphas who might lead the world with compassion and courage that are the hallmarks of a born leader, male or female, of whatever religion or background or caste the actual intended alphas of the species. Context of white supremacy. That is our second audio segment. All done. Uh, let's see if I can 
Oh, I'm hearing a, like, what is going on here? I'm seeing an echo uh, in the background. Let's see. Uh, all righty. Uh, I'm going to get one email in, and then we'll get to the phone line for the rest of our callers. That'll be my goal. Your echo one, guys. Oh, I thought I had. All right. Am I still echoing? No, that's better. Awesome. Thank you kindly, sir. Uh, let's see. All right. So the goal is see if I can get through my emails. Uh, All right. Different uh, person wrote in. Uh, I was initially excited about Cased. I was not. If folks remember, I said curious, not excited. I did. For some reason, I had a notion that this was not going to be a high quality book. But anyway, I was initially excited about Cased right after you finished the book, White Dog, the good old days. I went ahead and read Cased in order to keep up and get a different perspective from what I drew from it. I'm embarrassed to say, but I thought it was informative despite reluctance to use the term white supremacy. It's so interesting to be me. It's so interesting to be made aware of how much I glossed over her use of metaphors. I enjoyed the writing so much and I went on to read the warmth of other sons. Woo. Case seems very closely related to that book because she uses the term case so frequently in the warmth of other sons. I'm going to continue following the book club to get a better understanding. The biggest reason I wanted to send this email is because I'm currently reading the book Parable of the Talents. Oh, that's a different book. Uh, Okay, so I'll tell about that. Maybe I'll get to that around the road. Uh, Octavia Butler Kindred Cowbell talked about her before science fiction. We should do some sci-fi. We've never read sci-fi. Man. Anyway, that's off topic. Case, let's see. I can maybe sneak in one more if this is short. Yes, we'll sneak in this one too. Okay. Totally different person wrote in. Uh, Good evening, Gus. Chapter 11. The author used the term bipolar cased system. I wish she would have defined that term because it is very confusing. It seems that she's insinuating that the case system is more freestanding, is some freestanding entity enforcing racist to be racist. And that is just the furthest, furthest thing from the truth. The author said that in India, the cased don't doesn't need anything besides belief. I'm not sure how true that is. I'm not well versed in India's history, but if she's comparing it to white supremacy in America, that's just totally incorrect. White supremacy here in America is held in place by actions. Not too far after this idea is expressed by the author, uh, the author lays out a conscious, deliberate act of racism, such as redlining, which further illustrates my point of racism is held in place by actions more than belief. The implicit bias concept the author is presenting is vague and very general. It would have been very helpful with a few antidotes to support her implicit bias concept. It seems like a way to forgive whites for practicing racism because they're supposed to be unconscious of their racism, which is hogwash. That's my word. Uh, Her antidote about white felons getting hired before black people with no criminal record is very deliberate. Whites are aware of racial classifications when making these decisions. It's not even a split second decision in hiring practices. Her antidote about medical treatments is just sad. There's too much scholarship written on black people's terroristic experiences with the medical industry to even suggest that it may be due to implicit bias. 
we even had a white author on the program. Let me tell I'm only doing this because this is one of the five books that I said actually has racism in the title. He was a guest on the cows twice. Dr. John Hoberman, black and blue, the origins and consequences of medical racism. One of the main theses of his book that we talked about when he was a guest back in 2012 is that this is not implicit bias, that you have a lot of white doctors who are proud Trump supporters at the time. He would have said like Romney supporters or anti Obama supporters. Uh, you have a lot of folks. They've made a lot of money. They have a very what they call conservative lifestyle right wing, as they call it. These uh euphemisms for racism white supremacy but he said yeah and then you look at all the the information about racism in the medical field maybe it's some of these doctors are racist <laughs> he said nobody wants to, that's that unless i misread that's one of the main themes from his book but anyway uh continuing there's too much taking black people's genetic material disproportionately shows there's deliberate intent and that isn't a split second decision and that's also a Wellsing moment chapter 14 Miss Wilkerson's question of when should we talk to children about oh, 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 oh we didn't get that far we'll pick up there next week I think I except for reading one of the other person's uh, complete email I did my duty got all of our emails yay me Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. All of our listeners, uh, if you have a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Uh, if you didn't get to speak at all and think you want to hop in before the program ends, don't wait till the last moment. Go ahead and get a hand up. Uh, folks who dialed in, proceed. Can I be heard? Mo in Dallas. Oh, it's actually Henry in Chicago. Sorry. All right, no problem. Um, chapter 13, uh, it seems like this, you know, it's like, uh, you know, one of the things is that uh, I do think she's a, she's a, she's a decent writer. Uh, but, you know, even though this book is, you know, very confusing with the terminology that she's using, but it seems like this chapter 13, the insecure alpha, um, I don't know. It just, it just broke the whole flow of the book, you know, even though, like I said, it's with the terminology she's using, it's, you know, it's confusing, but it's like, I don't, I don't know if, you know, just, you know, saying metaphorically that if somebody just dropped this chapter in the book, you know, just randomly talking about, you know, dogs and alpha males and stuff like that. And it's like, I think she, she only used the word case one time in this chapter. So I'm like, you know, what was the point of that chapter? I, I mean, I'm not sure what was the point of it in regards to the whole book of case or cast or whatever you want to say. Um, and also, too, um, you know, you were talking about reviews of this book, and I'm mostly getting that non-white black people are the ones that are praising this book. Uh, I'm not getting a lot of white people. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of white people. I think I've seen a few. But, what, what you know, what's interesting is with the warmth of the suns, I was prompted to read that book uh, off the suggestion of a white woman who recommended that book. And, you know, that was actually, you know, kind of stunning since 
I did read the book and it was very productive, but this was when I was a little less confused. But, you know, she had she had suggested, you know, The Warmth of the Sun being a, a good book, but, you know, no white person hasn't suggested this book to me. And like I said, I was wondering if you or, or, if you or anybody has found more non-white people, uh, especially non-white black people, praising this book uh, than white people. Um, but that's all I have in my life. That is the exact term I used. Now, I did say, ooh, maybe we're supposed to be reading this book at this very moment because the very book that we just read white dog in fact we had the listener who just mentioned it when he emailed in so i said oh, okay maybe we're lined up supposed to be reading this right now but this feels really random like i i almost thought if this is if we already know this is or if, if there's some thought that this is contrived like the election is coming up so we want to push people they mentioned trump again this week so if this is some go cast that ballot you and kamala harris got something in common Biden Harris if this is in any way that type of thing and this was thought out in advance and we got the Netflix push we get something on the back end and all that uh, I could see white people at Random House saying you know hey white people if they, and a lot of white people read The Warmth of Other Sons we talked about that during the book club uh, if it, there's any notion that we want this to be a big time bestseller and make it more appealing to white people not going to say racism great not even going to call them white people great uh, white people are harmed by racism. Great. Uh, get something about dogs. Awesome. Because <laughs> um, it feels so random and just completely disconnected to what she had just been talking about in the narrative uh, scapegoating. It, I mean, it, I use the it's random. It just felt totally random. Uh, and I mean, for someone who is so skilled as a writer, both as a journalist and in long form with the warmth of other sons uh, to have, and I, fe- I said specifically with that text it was precision crafted well I mean just exemplary writing that's not the case here like not even close Oof. Uh, yeah that's with uh, the dog portion will get other folks that other folks have uh, comments that they wanted to make sure they get in as well. Can I be heard? That is Mo in Dallas. Clean out your ears, Gus T. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. Um, Anthony House, I believe his name was. Um, uh, he was the victim of an explosion. Um, and when that occurred, he was either coined a drug dealer or a suicide bomber um, and kind of just written off. Um, uh, uh, Ten days later, um, uh, another bombing, um, and then that's when it popped back up on the, the Austin, Austin PD radar. And um, two days after that, um, two white men um, were exploded by a tripwire. 24 hours later, um, the bomber uh, uh, was located and apparently blew herself up. Um, Anthony wasn't a scapegoat. Um, he was a black male, a uh, victim of white supremacy uh, in a system of racism. Um, uh, 
um, I think that his his death was discounted so easily because he was a black male, not because he was um, a, a lower caste member or anything like that. It was simply a, a black male dead. Uh, all right, like, what's next? Like, and it was just that simple. So, um, I don't I don't appreciate the um, the how she's trying to to weave in. Um, um, just victims of racism into into a caste system, which has never been like acknowledged. I, I don't want to say it hasn't been acknowledged in this country, but it's not really referred to as such. So, just the constant reference, the constant references of it being a caste system, I uh, um, I consider that offensive. Um, um, uh, the Ebola uh, incident. Again, I believe that was a black male in 2014. I remember. I think I remember watching that on the news. I could be incorrect, but um, that that did happen in, in my hometown, and um, I remember that victim um, it being on the news. He was sent home with antibiotics. How the story unfolded, he was sent home with antibiotics, and, and he actually had to go to what I consider one of the worst hospitals uh, in the county. It's considered the county hospital. Um, and I believe he was um, neglected proper treatment because of you know his race and his his, race, his racial classification. I believe the first person cured of Ebola um, uh, was a was an Asian lady. Um, I, I believe I'm not certain. It was so long ago. Um, and I also uh, agree that Chapter 13 seems misplaced. Um, she is a great writer. Um, and I, I can tell she, she's a, a nice, like a, she's a very well-written writer. That's why I'm so frustrated with this book. Chapter 13 would have stood alone better as an independent essay or something of that sort. Um, it was out of place in this book. And it, it, it did mess up the flow. So I agree with the previous caller. Um, that's all I have for now in my life. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Uh, I forgot. Henry in Chicago, he asked about the reviews. I do remember a lot of white people. Like, in fact, whole video, we talked about this. There would be like, she would go give talks sometimes for the warmth of other sons. It would be a room, and it would be like a room full of white people. I distinctly remember once it was a book festival of some sort, and they were outside under like a tent, and it was almost all white people, maybe like one or two, but I mean, I'm talking like more than 50 people. Uh, and it was all white people. Oh, this is great. Blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know about this, blah, blah, blah. And all the rest of it. So, uh, yes, I remember lots of white people who had, you know, heaps of praise for the warmth of other sons. Other than the New York Times review, I cannot say that I recall that as frequently this time around. I know she's done lots of interviews and everything, but most of the time when I've seen somebody who has a picture of the book or is holding the book and is, Oh, this is awesome. This, yeah, it has been a non-white person. Uh, sometimes someone classified as black, sometimes a non-white, non-black person, but all the people that I have seen giving glowing reviews, this book is awesome. Whoopee. It'll save it. It has been all non-white people thus far. Uh, other folks with commentary?
grand. I'll share a few thoughts uh, and then make sure we didn't miss folks. Like the whole canine thing was just kind of bizarre. I'm not sure what more to say. Um, the I remember that it took me a second to just kind of get my bearings. Like, oh, we talked about all that. That's like a recent hit. Again, that's so recent with those bombings down in Austin. Like we were talking about all of that in 2018. So this is like very recent she's talking about the covid and the social distancing so that's this year and all so this is not like i don't think she was sitting around thinking about writing this project in i don't know 2010 2012 there's definitely a connection between this book and the warmth of other sons but i'm going to stick to what i've said previously that i think this seems like something that was hastily assembled uh, I would even say poorly edited I would think if you have a quality editor they would say something about cohesion issues with the section on the alpha dog and all of that like can we do anything to make this flow a little bit standalone essay maybe it should go someplace else maybe there should be another uh, chapter or a bit more writing to connect maybe we can get a section about white dog and and how they use them and then we go right into bang there we go we get right right to a romaine gary i'm sure she could find a section from edward baptist or somewhere where dogs have been used to mistreat black people she knows about nat king cole they killed they poisoned his dog she has that in the warmth of other suns so bang there you go she could have used that as the segue that's what i mean like are you telling me that you think Pulitzer Prize winning Isabel Wilkerson that she has less access to information and putting this information together in a coherent manner than Gus T? Hmm. I don't think so because it didn't take me very long to think of how that could go in and be in a cohesive manner and probably wouldn't take a whole lot of you know extra writing. That could be like a short chat or you could just expand that chapter slightly right and bang there you go if you want to we got to get the dog thing in for whatever that's worth okay white people like talking about dogs all right get the dog thing in. romania gaming whitey yes and then we proceed with the book no we just got a sloppily it's poorly edited all the rest and maybe deliberately so um but yeah i remember all that we talked about that we had dr uh elliot jaspin robert jensen sorry Robert Jensen, who is a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. We had him as a guest uh, on the program to chit chat about all of this way back when he's been a guest on the program repeatedly. Uh, I do think that's important, that consistent, because this is not ancient history, right? This just happened. I mean, a couple years ago, literally, this is not 50 years ago, 100 years ago in terms of that same sort of lack of regard for black black lives do not matter. Uh, they would not have behaved in the same manner uh, that maybe this nigger bombed himself. Uh, if this had gone to an individual classified as white, it would have probably been handled very, very differently. Uh, let's see. Is anything else I wanted to get in about the second the dog portion really staggered me. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the Ebola. I was waiting for the connect back to the Rona. See, I feel like that would have been better if this is written so. 
this was written concurrently with the Rona, you could have went into more detail right there. That would have made more sense as opposed to we'll pick back up on the Rona situation later in the book. If we're, I mean, you could go into that right now, but I'm not an editor. And uh, yeah, again, maybe Ava DuVernay will be able to make all this sparkle uh, on Netflix. Uh, Any other comments folks want to make sure that they get in before we wrap things up? We'll assume folks are satisfied for this week. I was not excited. I was curious, but each week I lose a little bit more curiosity with how repugnant this whole thing has been. Uh, I will be mindful about the reviews. I'll see if I find any white people who are, you know, jumping up and down and saying this is this is awesome and can't wait for the Netflix thing and all the rest of it. I'll have to see as we continue to read if that is the case. Uh, And you all can be mindful of that as well. Like what are people saying about this book? Do they think it's great? Maybe you can even ask them some questions about some of these metaphors and the way that it's presented. And do they think that that's accurate, that Jim Crow, the Jim Crow South endangered white women? Is that accurate? Hmm. Confusion is lethal. We will be here tomorrow neutralizing workplace racism. Normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Tune in. We got update. Man, Boston, we are on time. We had our young scholar. So he's going to university in Boston, beginning of 2021. And he wanted suggestions. He's supposed to have two white male roommates, one non-white roommate with a white parent. We talked about this in detail on neutralizing workplace racism last week. Uh, that's, you know, your workplace if you're a college student, uh, really student period. But uh, we talked about it. We got more details. So we'll give the update. Uh, he listened to the program, was very appreciative of all the folks who took time to give him suggestions. And uh, he answered some of the questions that we had last week so we could have more detail about what he's potentially going to be going into this situation. Uh, but <laughs> Boston, man, Charles Stewart, we are on t- like our timing has been impeccable in 2020. Like, whoa, going to Boston. That is the Charles Stewart situation, which we talked about many times on this here broadcast. We even I've uh, had some of our uh, guests over the years. We had a black female. She grew up in Boston. And I remember remember asking her. Uh, about what it was like during this time because she was there and she said I remember this and you know they were going and rousting black people and all that I have to post the program but it was not related to that at all I think we were talking about something totally different but she grew up there just in terms of how that sort of event can impact black in fact there's a documentary about uh, Charles Stewart and you can see they have like police footage of when they went out and did the raids uh, and were like busting down black people's houses and all the rest of it and we're not going to tolerate this and it's uh, if I find it I'll post it but they had they did like a good I don't know 30 minute uh, documentary or so like covering the whole thing and what was the response and how long it took for all the evidence to come out and blah, like they've written tons of books and you know like I said we talked about it a bunch but if I find that documentary I'll post it it is uh, you know more accurate than this year text. Anyway, we'll be here tomorrow. You watch that. If you're, you have a child that is going to school in Boston, they're so cool. And they're going to get to hang out in the Cambridge area for a bit. Like 
Yeah, make sure they know about Charles Stewart and uh, are not misinformed about where they're going to be spending their time. Be careful around those white people. Uh, with that, uh, sub- Ooh, man, we said that about 50 times last week. Our advice to the young scholar moving to Boston, sobriety would be best. Like, man, they come down, hey, man, get me to do some beer upon. No. Protect your brain cells. We need all of our thinking, high level thinking, as Dr. Welsing would say. Uh, in addition to being sober, let's forget being buckled. Hunker down. White fella just went out and killed his wife, blamed it on a black guy. Like it's been horrendous all year long. They just had some black teenagers were out at the park and a white guy assaulted one of them with a bike lock, called them a nigger and all the rest of it. Like it's been terrible all year long. In addition to the Rona, they got 9 p.m. curfew in Paris now. It's been horrible. Stay in the house. That would be my recommendation. If you must go outside, it's something serious, you know, related to your offspring or job, whatever it's going to be. Man, we are super alert. I mean, head on a swivel. I am paying attention to what's happening around me. Anything that looks like, uh oh, this is a little bit unsavory. White person getting rowdy. All of that. This person might have a gun. We do not need any unnecessary risks in 2020. We've had more than enough of that for one calendar year. It is time to exit anything that looks like, uh oh, this could be leading to some sort of verbal altercation. I'm not yelling at anybody, anything like that. This activity is canceled. We'll have to pick this up at a safer date and time. That would be my recommendation for children going to college, spouse, whatever it is, you be really safe uh, th- I just read that report I shared it uh, before we went live don't even have bullets man they got white people say I just go to the score and scout for when they have a few bullets in stock so I can buy them all it's been so hard to get them I just go and I check and I check and I check gotta get bullets gotta get bullets got a scarcity of toilet paper quarters and bullets in 2020 and they're still buying guns and more guns and more guns. Even the people that say they're voting for Biden and Kamala Harris are buying guns and more guns and more guns. This is not the time to gallivant outside. Stay safe. All of that said, creator. Oh, wait a minute. It was buckled. If you got to go out, you're sober. If you're driving, you're not on the cell phone. Super important because We need to be paying attention so we can't be on the phone or texting or whatever it is if you are alert and we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers. There's too much terrorism as is just doing the little things. Now, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. No name calling. Help us demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. 
I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>